Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today I am here with Donald Parkinson, editor and chief of Cosmonaut Magazine and co-host of the Cosmopod podcast, both of which I would highly recommend, mainly because they provide a unapologetically revolutionary Marxist view that does not fit into the linear categories of the dominant revolutionary tendencies, such as Marxist-Leninism, uh, Trotskyism, Maoism, anarchism, left communism. And what they really try to do is they try to allow different leftist tendencies and factions to have a dialogue with each other, which is very much needed at the moment. And this brings us to the topic of the podcast, which is factionalism on the left, particularly that of Marxism-Leninism. This podcast is not meant to be a complete dismissal of Marxism-Leninism or a indictment on the character of all Marxist-Leninists. Rather, it is more so a critique of Marxist-Leninist historiography and the way it is used today by many Marxist-Leninists on the internet and scholars and um, the ways in which they do politics with certain historical narratives surrounding big topics like the Soviet Union, East Europe, China, Stalin, etc., and the general idea of quote-unquote anti-revisionism being a centerpiece of that. But without further ado, before getting straight into the main topic, Donald, would you introduce yourself and plug your work? Yeah, I'm uh, Donald Parkinson. I uh, am primarily in charge of the written aspect of Cosmonaut. And uh, I started the Cosmonaut Project in 2018 because I felt like that... uh, Revolutionary Marxists, Marxists who uh, you know, believe in the project of, of proletarian revolution, really needed a, uh, a a kind of forum for us to hash out our different uh, theoretical and uh, strategic differences to investigate our historical contradictions and you know the issues of a uh, historiography and kind of you know expanding our understanding of our history as Marxists beyond the kind of usual narratives that have kind of been accepted by different leftist sectarian groups. And our main audience from the beginning has been other leftists, particularly Marxists, not so much uh, everyday workers, because I guess the kind of argument that we would make is that if we want to be able to reach everyday workers at the broad mass first we need a party but to form a party we need to overcome the sectarian division of the existing left which entails getting different marxist tendencies to actually talk to each other and to start uh hashing out what a kind of mass party in the future would look like what would it mean to actually have a a united Marxist party? Would it mean having a Trotskyist party or a Marxist-Leninist party? Or would it mean having a party that is united around a Marxist program rather than a specific interpretation of Marxist theory? And so Cosmonaut is in many ways an intervention that myself and other comrades involved have been making around a lot of these ideas. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that kind of sums it up pretty well. Yeah, and we certainly need that on the left, don't we? Like, uh, because we see that, you know, it's one thing to talk about broad leftist unity, 
But I think more importantly and more realistically is at the very least some kind of communist unity, right? Right, Which, right. Of course, being the dominant of the communists would be Marxist. And that is very much not what's happening right now. You see the communist parties usually are very, very small and very divided and are focused on really the reproduction of their own sect as opposed to broadening out their base. Right. And a lot of... Yeah, a lot of a guy that um, a lot of us are influenced by, Mike McNair. And, Revolutionary uh, Strategy. Yeah, yeah he wrote this great book, Revolutionary Strategy. He, uh, you know, he, he writes a lot for his... Um, online page called a newspaper called the weekly worker he's got a lot of interesting stuff i but he hikes a comparison to um the modern day system of sectarian groups to utopian socialist in the pre-marxist era in the sense that you kind of had like different sectarian groups around like robert owen the owenist the uh, saint simonians the prudonists and you have all these kind of different sectarian groups that are formed around following one utopian visionary. But then there's an advancement away from this in the workers' movement towards the idea of having a, a party that's organized around program rather than adherence to the uh, kind of utopian or just general visions of a single individual. And I think that the left has kind of actually collapsed away from the more advanced notion of a party organized around the program back towards utopian sectism it's just that it's uh you know the cliffites grantites um marcius would be the psl people and wwp people and then whoever leads those and so eventually what you have is like a, a fracturing splitting of the movement into different you know smaller sectarian groups that are united around the theoretical ideas of a single you know brilliant guy and I think that uh, what we need to be doing is be moving in the opposite direction towards a kind of Marxist unity where different theoretical tendencies can coexist but still cooperate strategically around a, a program and a, a program that is based in Marxism nonetheless. Exactly. We need a mass party, not a cult. Right. <laughs> and well, yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with that in, in, in theory, but... Yeah, well, the the thing also, um, which brings us to this, is there's really in the Western left, and I hate that term, but like let's let's actually narrow it down. Even say, well, let's say the Amer American. Uh, am I echoing? One second, I need to. No, no, you're good. Yeah. At least as far as I can tell. Okay, when it comes to the uh, Western left, which really I would say encapsulates the north american left and also the british left you, know, you could include france in there too uh mainly the biggest tendencies in communism have been trotskyism for a very long time and really started to fall apart after 1989 uh, when virtually all communist sects declined in in, uh, yeah. in in influence uh but i would say in recent years there's been a dramatic rebirth in marxist leninism particularly right and right. yeah and and it makes sense in one way because marxism leninism is undoubtedly the most influential school of marxism mainly because of the soviet union and the soviet union exerting its influence all over east europe and in the revolutions back like the cuban revolution the vietnamese revolution uh and the chinese civil war um so it has a big influence, but it really was not popular in the West. Uh, but I have seen 
in recent years it becoming popular again and thus it's this is with that it's resurrecting some of the old debates like um you know stalin what is how should stalin be looked at in the left what is how good versus bad was the soviet union certain um you know atrocities uh you know what is the role of china today and that's where i think even marxist leninists are divided which is why i want to avoid generalizing all marxist leninists by splitting them to two camps which would be the revisionist camp and the anti-revisionist camp so right, right. yeah they, I, would, I look at it more like um official communism like the people who um you know were part of the officially soviet-backed communist parties and the remnants of those parties today and I guess you could call them like Khrushchevists, or I guess like a Brezhnevist is what some people call them. But the kind of like official communist brand. But then you have like in the 50s, beginning in the 50s, you have like anti-revisionist groups that start like breaking off from the official communist parties and start looking to China or Albania or sometimes Cuba as alternatives to the Soviet way. And mm -hmm. so they call this anti-revisionism. I have the idea that the Soviet Union has like embraced revisionism, which is, you know, a complicated issue. Because well, I think they did embrace revisionism, but I think they had done so long before the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I don't think revisionism is useful as a historical category just because of so many things that could be thrown under that umbrella. But uh, like uh, we'll probably get more into that later. But just to delineate between the two Marxist factions is, as you said, official Marxism, the way I would look at that is the people who today think China is a uh, um, really like official represents an official Marxism and that they are heading towards uh, communism. And, um, you know, some would say that they are socialists now. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they would say probably the same about Vietnam, uh, North Korea, uh, maybe even maybe even some would even push the line and say that uh, Syria and certain and certain other states. I've seen like, people say that Iran is socialist, uh, which is very that bizarre. Caleb, that Caleb Malpin guy said, but he said that the Iranian Islamic Republic is socialist <laughs> because the state takes care of its people it's just absolutely absurd if you know anything about socialism is when the government does stuff yeah no it's <laughs> it's very silly i think he's got to know deep down how silly that is but whatever so yeah so there is that tendency of marxism leninism which i think i take much less seriously but it is getting pretty popular um that should be at least analyzed uh i think that kind of marxism leninism is much more of a parody of itself and then there is like quote-unquote uh anti-revisionist marxism leninism which that itself is a category because it, uh, maybe you could put into three categories they're all kind of essentially what i would describe as stalinist uh in the sense that they think that um true marxism leninism ended after stalin died and with uh khrushchev and you know then you get divisions between the people who are just marxist leninist anti-revisionist then you would get maoists so people who think that the Chinese revolution and Mao's cultural revolution are universalizable to future communist movements. And then you would get Hoshists, which are people who think Mao is, Mao is also revisionist. Uh, and that, uh, you know, Enver Hoxha was the true carrier of uh, Stalin, uh, Marx style Marxism, Leninism. But within this, uh, what I think is more important rather than the particular names that this is associated is the sort of narratives historical narratives that are embraced by these type of um 
factions. And one of that involves the legacy of Stalin. Uh, right. So then maybe to start off, um, in what, in what, like, um, first, actually, before we get maybe into the historical narratives, in what ways, why do you think Marxism-Leninism has become popular again? Because that's actually worth interrogating first. and then Right, right. This is where I kind of show my sympathies with Marxism-Leninism, because I think that uh, essentially what happens is you have people who realize they've been lied to and that there's an insane amount of propaganda. I think the Bernie Sanders campaign got a lot of people interested in socialism, so people start looking into socialism. And the United States, you know, we're just going to get bombarded with right-wing stuff about how Stalin killed hundreds of millions more than Hitler. And, you know, just, um, you know, how, you know, East Germany was just this open air prison where nobody had any freedom and no one was happy. And, you know, you just hear all this stuff about how communism is evil. And, you know, then you actually look a little closer at the actual history, which is pretty easy to do in the age of the internet. And like you start seeing stuff that's like, Oh, well, you know, this is actually a bit more complex. There's a lot of lies being told here. There's, um, you know, just a lot of propaganda. You know, these countries were being attacked by the West. And so it's kind of silly to, like, put them under, like, perfect ideal metrics. And so, you know, there's, you know, this kind of a pushback to the propaganda. And I think, you know, it's important to debunk anti-communist propaganda and to have truthful understandings of our history and to avoid distortions of our history but i think that that impulse needs to be countered by self-critique and desire to uh to overcome the flaws of our own history and to be aware of those flaws and to not just be like pure apologists or propagandists for our past but to actually come to a critical understanding of how we have failed in many ways and how this is connected to the failures of the left today, in fact, and how the uh, how leftist movements have only been able to um, improve themselves through, through self-critique of, of their failures of the past. And I think that the attitude a lot of Marxist-Leninists have, which is kind of trying to be like PR agents for past or current, you know, socialist governments, can get in the way of actually doing the hard and kind of self-critical analysis that would allow us to uh, bring socialism into the 21st century. Yeah, I think those those are definitely really good points, and especially the one about people being lied to. Because I would, in my opinion, there's probably I can think of three big reasons as to why Marxism-Leninism is popular again, and one is that reason, and it's because the uh, exaggeration and hysteria of Cold War propaganda is sometimes so hyperbolic and so ridiculous that it's kind of very easy to debunk just on first glance. Like, you know, you look at the Black Book of Communism that says over 100 million were killed, and then you can see very close that they include people who died in World War II, they include Nazis, they include people who died in famines, they include... They have all these ridiculous ways of measuring this. You see, oh yeah, there's a lot of lies. So when you realize that, um, it's very easy to kind of think that all things about the Soviet Union are lies, that all atrocities are just made up, and that uh, you know if you believe that there was there was a suppression of civil liberties or a dem democratic deficit in Soviet Union, that 
Uh, this is all bourgeois propaganda as well, because it's hard to even tell what's true and false when you realize how much you've been lied to. And that brings me to the second reason is why Marxism Leninism is appealing is because it's kind of a very easy one dimensional narrative. Um, right. Say, right. You know, and yeah, like, really, I do a catechism basically. Yeah. And it's very sure. totalizing because uh, like it, and it's, and it's easy to become an ideology. And when I say ideology, I don't think that's, I, I don't say that to say that it's, it's possible to be non-ideological, but when I say that it's ideology, I mean, it's almost like a religion because it, obfuscates contradictions and the reason that's why it's appealing because you can say replace you know bourgeois li liberal or conservative ideology with a thing that says actually all those actually existing socialist countries everything that they did was for a reason and even the even the all the bad things either didn't happen or they happened they had to happen right it's this manichaean worldview of kind of um history is uh you know the good guys versus the bad guys and we just got to exactly the good guys all the time and if the good guys did something bad that's just because it's you know they were just tough enough to do what it took to take down the bad guys you know it's mm -hmm. very yeah, simplistic so like, but it's it, 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 it's it's a propaganda narrative it's what i call propaganda history and if you want to get mm -hmm. people pumped up and, and confident and a socialist movement i think it does provide a purpose but i don't think that it's still possible to it's going to make masses of people confident in our socialist movement. I think we need to kind of, we need to develop a narrative for, for today that takes account of the uh, the failures of the past. And, and it actually brings Marxism forward while staying committed to the revolutionary, you know, aspects of Marxism. A hundred percent. And that brings me to the third reason I think Marxism, Leninism is popular, and that is the failure of other leftist tendencies. I think most notably would be reformism, so social democracy, as well as uh, Trotskyism, particularly Trotskyism was often the alternative to Stalinism, and that never, never really led to any revolutions. And, you know, Trotskyist sects ended up um, creating other Trotskyist sects. And there's a joke that you get two Trotskyists in a room, you get three parties. <laughs> so, like, uh, there, there, that has been a failure, but also I think more notably is... Uh, is reformism like for example we can point to how many successfully dem quote unquote democratically elected socialists like uh, uh francois Mitterrand in france or in latin america like salvador allende or hugo chavez um they were able to make some ref like reforms in the short term but they were either out out elected just replaced by a neoliberal party or violently crushed by a military coup and that kind of sort of i think pokes a hole in the whole anti-authoritarian leftism right, uh, right. angle so it's easy to go say oh yeah so we do need repression and i can see why people like you know i do think that there is serious criticisms of like demo of uh of liberal constitutionalism and allowing fascists to overthrow you and stuff and i do think if you look in marx he also believed in something called the dictatorship of the proletariat um but i think some people will then look at the failure of these movements to suggest that all of the um, excesses of of uh, the USSR and China and East Europe were necessary and inevitable, which I don't think is true. Yeah, I think uh, the question of revisionism, I just wanted to bring this up real quick because I think there is value to anti-revisionism. Like, um, the term anti-revisionism actually 
comes from Karl Kautsky against Bernstein. Karl Kautsky um, was basically, you know, kind of a theoretical leader of the Day, and Bernstein had been another primary theoretical leader, but he basically, you know, he started just giving up on all the, the revolutionary aspects of Marxist politics and essentially trying to kind of uh, make Marxism into this kind of uh, middle-class friendly reform over revolution type ideology. He still believed that we would get to socialism, but he basically just didn't think that like a break with the bourgeois state was necessary and that, you know, the, the workers party could essentially just continually pass reforms to evolve the state into a socialist one. So anti-revisionism starts as a defense of the revolutionary vision of Marx against, you know, these types of people. I think the problem is when people use it as a car for dogmatism and when people just kind of use it to like dismiss ideas and to just like, use it as a thought terminating cliche, I guess. But I do think that anti-revisionism has some value to it. I think there is a need to defend the revolutionary perspectives of Marx against those who wish to make Marxism into something that can, that will be friendly to liberals, basically, right? Mm. And so, uh, you know, the whole thing about, like, revolution needing repression and stuff, I don't really like to focus on this a lot because... You know, you see a lot of leftists today online who just get really edgy about this stuff. And they're just like, like, oh, random liberal, you know, you're going to, uh, you know, we're going to kill you when the revolution comes. You know? Gulag. Yeah, just we're going to gulag you all, you know, no human rights will exist. You know, we're just going to you know, take out all our enemies. And it's just, you know, I mean. Not a good look. It's just not, you know, what we should be trying to make revolution about. We should make revolution about popular democracy and overcoming, you know, reactionary institutions. And, you know, and I don't think violence is what defines revolution. I think, you know, revolution does need to violently defend itself as necessary, and it does need to take the actions necessary to break with the old order. But I don't think we should fetishize the idea of arbitrarily killing our enemies. You know, I think um, the Cuban revolution was pretty good about this. Like all the reactionaries, they were put on trial and, you know, so a lot of them were executed, but there was actually a fair trial at least. And I think essentially like we don't want to embrace this kind of culture of like arbitrary authority and arbitrary violence. And that's one thing that studying Stalin's purges has really convinced me of is that like, Mm -hmm. We can't just be like bloodthirsty, like maniacs. Like, we actually do have to have like <laughs> legal codes and moral codes and stuff like that that kind of keep us from, you know, becoming like uh, just insane tyrants. Legal, legal codes is a big one for me. Uh, we can get into that a bit after because I think the, the Soviet legal system was very inefficient. Uh, well, not inefficient is not the good word, but it uh, didn't have checks and balances against right. trials like there um, wasn't but, the right to a trial until khrushchev basically mm -hmm. and um so with regards though first to anti-revisionism is um i mean yeah it holds some importance especially with when it comes to the rosa luxemburg versus bernstein debate reform and revolution because bernstein as you mentioned tried to distort marxism uh into this evolutionary socialism uh which we know today sort of as radical social democracy. Uh, we could we could look at it in many ways 
Allende's project is sort of a Bernstein kind of project. Um, but I don't really like to I, see, I, I don't think there's value in anti-revisionism, even though in the, I agree with the goals of anti-revisionists, uh, because for example, I don't think, I, th I don't think I wouldn't criticize like, for example, Bernstein on the basis that he's not faithful to Marxism. Uh, because I that is not I feel like that's it feels too almost religious like it's like uh, you're not being true to what Jesus said for me I more criticize Bernstein because I just don't think that's a way to get socialism like that's like the I the reformist ideals I think have been tried and failed uh, actually much tried and failed much more than even Marxism Leninism. Um, so there's those are the grounds I would more debunk it as opposed to revisionism because the problem is is when it comes to anti-revisionism, you get into the debate as to you one, it assumes that everything Marx said was like correct. Uh, and I don't think that's really healthy <laughs> uh, intellectually. And also it gets into a whole uh, interpretation madness where people want to debate as to what Marx said. And still to these days, right? Like there's this debate as to what did Marx even mean by socialism? Because there's the, yeah, um, yeah, I hate that. there's, yeah, there's, there's a, there's um, leftists who will say that, you know, low phase communism and the dictatorship of the proletariat are not the same thing, right? The dictatorship of the proletariat isn't socialism, but then you have the Marxist Leninists and Maoists who will say the, the low phase communism is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that that is like what socialism is. Uh, and um, so you still to this day don't have these agreements. And I don't think it's useful to debate it on the grounds of whatever, whatever Marx said. Uh, I think it's more like, is this, does this make sense? Like, right. I mean, I, there's a lot of these political questions. We can't really answer them on the basis of what Marx said. But what I think that Kautsky's anti and Luxembourg's kind of point with their anti-revisionism is, is that, uh, you know, Marx does have a correct theory of, of capitalists, you know, in a lot of, in my opinion, and it's basic on its basics. Marx does have like a correct theory of, of capitalism and of historical change and of how, you know, revolutions are what a company changes in modes of production. And I think that you know, this, this holds up in my opinion. And so I think, uh, you know, the problem with, you know, evolutionary socialist type views, like you said, is, you know, they, they won't, they're, they're not an actual means of getting the socialism, but we know that they're not an actual means of getting the socialism because we kind of have the whole theory of class conflict and the dictatorship of the proletariat that Marx essentially discovered, right? So I think it's, it's, it's both. We have to look at the evidence and, and scientific truth independent of what Marx said, but we still do have to go back to Marx and, and, you know, take a lot of his ideas and apply them. I think like a lot of his ideas are just legitimately correct and true. Mm -hmm. and we well, shouldn't be to say that. Yeah, sure. Uh, but this is where I, I, for me, I find anti-revisionism almost completely useless because when it's like, you're using it in that context, right? You're in the, in the Bernstein versus Kowski debate and the Rosa versus Bernstein debate. Uh, but you know, many people would argue that anti-revisionism is um, those who deviated from the Stalinist line. And that's actually the most popular way of thinking of anti-revisionism today by Marxist-Leninists. And one could also argue, right, like Trotskyists argue that um, Stalin didn't faithfully interpret Marx in one, because he thought socialism could be possible in one country. Uh, and two, because um, 
that you could the idea that uh, the USSR was uh, socialist, right? Because um, it was Lenin before he died claimed it was state capitalist, and then after the collectivization, Stalin proclaimed that there was a, a we, USSR was socialist and that classes ceased to exist. Um, so, like that, one could argue that Stalin was a revisionist, but if try telling that to a Marxist Leninist. You know, yeah, so, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, the whole Marxist-Leninist concept of anti-revisionism is very much like it's it's political football, I guess, in that in the sense that it's like a it's 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 really more about um you if MLs declare someone anti-revisionist is more just a way of saying you have fallen out of political favor with us, like you are a revisionist now, you have fallen out of political favor, so it's you know. I think it's I mean, really what's the, what's the problem with seeing that? Like uh, in general, what is the problem with categorizing anti-revisionism as not as deviating from um, the Stalinist line? And what I I think maybe I'll be faithful to them by going over what they tend to consider to be anti-revisionist. Like for example, they um, they tend to criticize Khrushchev's uh, liberalization of speech to be revisionist. Um, by allowing people who might uh, allow for some reforms to certain elements of uh, property ownership or markets even, or, um, you know, but I think for the big one is speech because Khrushchev allowed there to be debates. uh, And that was, (laughs) that's often very frowned upon by anti-revisionists. And uh, a big one is like eliminating the right opposition, uh, the capitalist rotors, so to speak. Uh, which is weird because that Deng Xiaoping is considered a capitalist rotor, which that makes sense. Uh, but so is Bukharin, right? Anti-revisionists see Bukharin as like a complete revisionist. I mean, in what, in what way is like, what's the problem with anti-revisionism as a way of thinking about Marxism? Like from this perspective, the Marxism. Well, yeah, I think in this perspective, like anti-revisionism basically just becomes like how hardline, like, Stalinist you are basically you know it's it's like how much are you willing to like use state repression to keep western ideas out of the country how much are you like um basically uh you know holding true to the kind of um socialism in one country developmentalism you know there's like a focus on like developing heavy industry above light industry there's a focus on um you know maintaining the uh the command economy and like the that's the way it was under Stalin, at least with like the khrushchev stuff and there's a whole idea that really the big one that people point to is peaceful coexistence khrushchev basically like openly talking about how foreign policy needs to be about like coming to a detente with the americans which is really like the blame that on khrushchev in my opinion is silly because stalin consistently tried to like Mm-hmm. come to detente and agreements with the west like especially after world war ii his initial reaction was not to like you know go to war with the west but to try and form an alliance with them it was the west that started the cold war so i just think it's kind of you know whether that's correct or not is i'm not making a judgment on that but it is weird to me how they do kind of phrase like Hirsch has big revisionist sin as peaceful coexistence but really like i think it comes down to is this which is that they did not want the USSR when under Khrushchev would not let China have its own nuclear weapons. 
it didn't basically like help China build their own nuclear weapon industry. So China basically broke from the USSR, condemns them as revisionist, and then does the Great Leap Forward in their own attempt to basically get the industry and stuff to build the atom bomb, which they're successfully able to do. And they basically break the European of you know of the European monopoly of nuclear weapons. But you know, in that process, you get this whole idea that essentially Rushchev is as a revisionist in the same way that Bernstein was, and he's given up on the revolutionary core of Marxism. And we, you know, China, the People's Republic of China, are going to continue the true revolutionary trend against the uh, increasingly social imperialist USSR. So I think that's where the the, the modern meaning of anti-revisionism is. I think. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of ironic because Mao ended up, you know, making the deal with Nixon and Kissinger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you see China essentially does its own version of the revisionism that they're accusing, you know, the USSR of its own alliances with the U.S. And don't get me started on this because it kind of just drives me insane. But, I mean, if you really want to, like, take the true anti-revisionist line. Like, I think Albania are like the only people you can really point to as like holding strong to, you know, these anti-revisionist ideals as we kind of understood in the break of Mao from Khrushchev, I guess. But yeah, basically I look at it as just like hardline Stalinism. Like it's, it's the idea that you got like in the communist party, USSR, you got people who back Khrushchev and want reform. They want to liberalize things for better or for worse. And then you have the hardliners who want to basically keep going on the Stalin path. I mean, um, in what that's worth defining. What is Stalinism? Because um, that's used thrown around by different people, right? Yeah, because, I like also like Tr- term because Tr- because, uh, I want to just clarify, like Trotskyists use Stalinism to kind of talk about like socialism, one country and nationalism, right? And then you have liberals who use Stalinism to kind of just talk about the USSR type of government. So they call they they will call like the Eastern Bloc Stalinist. Or right, if I want to be like super accurate about what Stalinism was, it was about a dictatorship not of the party but of the political police of the uh, the secret police, the NKVD. The you know it had a bunch of different names under Stalin, different periods. I'm pretty sure, but regardless, like we are mostly known as the NKVD. And basically, the way, you know, Stalinism worked was it was through this, um, ultimately, the highest authority was Stalin, but he essentially asserted his authority, you know. Well, you know, this is complicated because I Stalin and the, the, the political ways didn't always agree. And there's, you know, this, the actual story is way more complicated. But I think in, in the basic picture what you basically had was this kind of like dictatorship of the secret police over the party and Stalin as kind of like the central guy mediating through all of it. But I think uh, if we really want to differentiate like Stalin era USSR from Khrushchev era USSR, I think it's the difference between, you know, the dictatorship of the secret police versus the dictatorship of the party and in, in, in many ways, Khrushchev actually does consolidate a uh, coherent Soviet elite, according to Stephen Cohen. Whereas under Stalin, it's, 
essentially there's just a way more uh i guess um the Soviet elite is, is is basically kind of in flux and you have like the purges where you know they're being attacked and they're fighting amongst each themselves and and with Khrushchev, you know, you have the end of the secret police dictatorship over the party and, and elite is kind of able to congeal and that becomes a kind of Brezhnev gerontocracy. But I think I think Stalinism is basically like all about that that's the secret police and their control over the party as a kind of higher power. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing they like to brag about the Stalinists is that um, they got rid of the bureaucrats and uh, that he got rid of capitalist rotors and revisionists. But the method of dealing with that is basically secret police terror. Right. Uh, that's the whole point. Is, um, you know, my podcast on Stalin that I did with Cosmonaut Comrades, I, I kind of described Stalin as like an anti-bureaucratic populist in the sense that um, he did draw a lot on people's resentment toward bureaucracy. He very much saw bureaucracy as a force that got in the way of what he wanted. And so he was very much about using the political police as a kind of weapon against the bureaucracy. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, obviously, we know the um, ramifications of this was the persecution of a lot of the old Bolsheviks, actually, most of the old Bolsheviks. That's the Red Purges, right? Maybe we'll get straight into that, because in my opinion, of the things that the Marxist-Leninists try to justify, one of the most bizarre to me is the justification of the Red Purges, because that wasn't terror against, you know, billionaires, capitalists, or fascists. It was the terror against communists. Um, and it, what, what do you think about um, the way st- like Marxist-Leninists use, talk about the Red Purges and justify them? And I guess we can maybe, I guess, also talk about Grover Fur because right. he's, the, he's like the number, he's like the only source they usually justify, they use to justify that this was uh, justified. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they'll use Grover Fur to justify, basically saying that, um, well, it's actually kind of a funny argument they make. They'll say, well, Khrushchev basically, like, we basically removed all the evidence that these people were guilty from the archives because he wanted to, you know, do his campaign against Stalin. And so, therefore, we, you know, if we assume that these charges were lies and incorrect, we are therefore listening to the anti-Stalin paradigm of bourgeois history. And so therefore we must like basically accept that these like charges are all correct because otherwise we'd be um, just assuming the bourgeois narrative that they're not. The charges of the show trials, right? Yeah. The show trials is what we're talking about. So basically, uh, you know, well, you know, the evidence has been removed because of Khrushchev. So therefore, if you just, you know, so therefore we can only assume that these trials were legitimate and, uh, you know, we should assume they were legitimate because we should not be operating in the anti-Stalin paradigm. But it's like, yeah, there's just a lot. It's like, it, it basically becomes like a kind of conspiracy theory. And some conspiracy theories are true. I mean, wrong. But there's just no real evidence to, to back up this claim. It's not solid historical work. The thing is, like, Grover Fur will, like, go through the archives and like point out interesting stuff, but he does that kind of he does these kind of like you know sleights of hand like I just talked about to kind of 
cover all the holes in his narratives and, and end up like coming out with a narrative that basically has Stalin doing nothing wrong and the uh, all problems with the Soviet system are due to like other bureaucrats and stuff like or it's just due to the fact that like Stalin didn't go into communism fast enough actually that's one of Groverfer's arguments it's essentially that um all of the problems the Soviet Union were because they did socialism instead of communism and so we can't blame Stalin for any of these problems because the problem was the system itself it's actually a very interesting debate like you know but sounds Ferd, like a Maoist argument. Yeah, it's inferred. It's apparently part of the Progressive Labor Party, or was part of the Progressive Labor Party, which was a kind of like a semi-Maoist like group that got popular in the '60s, and they did a lot of work in SDS. And their whole thing is like, no socialism, yes to communism. You know, we just need to go straight to the real deal and get rid of money as soon as possible. Yeah, which I think is absurd. Like, I just think that's how you like. Sounds like adventurism. Yeah, it's adventurism, it's uh, ultra-leftism, it's you know, how you end up with like crazy economic disasters. But nonetheless, you know... Well, I find something in common is that um, the countries that were the most anti-revisionist had the most economic failures. Like, for example, um, you look at... Well, I mean, under Stalin, there were great successes too. Obviously, like industrialization came at a massive human cost, but... You know, the argument can be made that like they they did what the British did in 70 years in in 20 years, basically. Uh, but uh, you also had massive famines like the the uh, the U the Ukraine and Kazakh famine, most notably. Right. Uh, wasn't really I mean, most historical evidence doesn't point that it was a genocide, rather just a big failure, massive failure of Soviet right, policy. Right. But also like under Hoshia, right. And, uh, and under Mao, you know, Mao had a great leap forward. No one can deny that's not a failure. Uh, and under Hoshi also, you know, he had a similar policy of heavily persecuting any sort of market exchange. And all it did is, you know, created more black markets and harsher punishments for what was happening inevitably. Uh, but to uh, maybe just, I, I got to I gotta say, we mentioned Grover Fur. I've, for those listeners who do not know who Grover Fur is, um, just quickly, he is a medieval literature professor who has somehow become an authority on Soviet history, even though he's not a historian or a Soviet historian for that matter. And he's written books like Khrushchev Lied uh, and other books that have much bigger titles that I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but uh, Khrushchev Lied's a big one. Um, but he, I mean, yeah, so that's that's Grover Fur, And I, I want you to elaborate on two things. So number one is the Grover Fur way of doing history and how it's influenced Marxist-Leninist thinking. And to the red, what actually happened in the red purges, because those who are listening might not know, because I think even Marxist Leninist, when they talk about it and try to justify, it, I don't think they're quite aware of what it was because they, they tend to think, I think they imagine the red purges as this event where Stalin just cracked down on all the fascists or conservatives or um, former czarists when it was much more than that, obviously. So maybe go into both of those things because, you know, my listener base is, not as definitely not as nearly as initiated as yours is. Yeah, yeah, no, the Great Purges were just a, a historic tragedy where the Bolshevik Party basically ate itself alive and massive amounts of the cadres and the in theoretical and political leaders who made the revolution plus tons of ordinary workers, rank and file workers, just random people 
ethnic minorities were basically arbitrarily uh, either sent to the gulag or murdered by secret police. And this huge social event that all layers of society were honestly in involved in and um, was driven by all kinds of different tendencies in society. It wasn't just like a plot that Stalin hatched up to consolidate power, but in many ways, I think it was an outgrowth of the, the problems of the system that developed in industrialization and collectivization. And that's a whole other thesis that I still am kind of working on. But um, so keep your eyes on the Cosmopod episodes that are about Soviet Union stuff. If you're interested in this topic, we're all kind of researching this and kind of developing our ideas. But we do kind of come to this idea that like the economic chaos caused by um, industrialization and like the kind of ultra bureaucratic command system that developed to do this industrialization basically kind of creates a perfect storm for something like the Great Purges to kind of come out because there's this problem of information flows. There's these problems with um, basically plans not being fulfilled and bottlenecks in industry coming up and this kind of search for scapegoats and this kind of uh, anti-bureaucratic populism as a way for Stalin to kind of what he sees as like this final class struggle that sharpens as socialism, you know, develops more and more. And it's also about the new Soviet elite that is forming that, you know, after the revolution, you know, all for technicians, for doctors, for everything like that, for all these kind of what people call professional managerial class occupations, you know, things that are often necessary for society to function you know, these skills and these forms of labor are controlled by kind of a privileged middle class elite in society that is not sympathetic to the Bolshevik revolution. And the Bolsheviks have to rely on these people in order to keep society running. And so I think what Stalin does in the 1930s is he essentially creates a new elite from just normal peasants and workers. He recruits them, sends them to school. You know, and they rise up in leadership in the party. They become like engineers and stuff. And so you really do have this whole generation of people who start as dirt poor peasants to rapidly becoming engineers and party leaders. And you just have tons of people like this. You just have this massive era of what I, you know, might possibly be the greatest level of social mobility in history. What you're having is a new Stalin elite that's loyal to Stalin is, is, is you know, developing. And they essentially, a lot of cases, like a way to move up in your career is to accuse people that are, you know, above you of being, you know, saboteur, Trotskyites, who, you know, blah, 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 and report on the NKVD. And so there is this tendency of people using the purges as, as, a, as a method of career advancement. So there's a lot of different social tendencies going mm -hmm. on here. And I, 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 don't mean to come off as like defending Stalin here, but I actually don't think you can understand the purges in terms of like Stalin consolidating power or like, I don't think it was all just like a conspiracy that Stalin came up with in order to like build his dictatorship. I think it's, it's, it's more of an emergent thing that comes out of several different tendencies in history. And that doesn't make it any less morally like terrible. I think it actually makes it more morally confusing and more, it's but more yeah. of a it's more of a failure because you don't have Stalin yeah you to can't blame, just blame it on one guy which is kind of yeah. what Khrushchev does. Well, the, 
Well, this is why I, I, I think it's a weird, like this is the weird thing Marxist Leninists do, right? Is sometimes they will point out that the evidence in, for example, J.R. Getty's Road to Terror would suggest that actually um, behind the, Stalin was not like this great mastermind behind the purges, knowing about everything. And you know, he wasn't even the one who was actually most ecstatic to purge people. Those other people who are more insane in the bureaucratic apparatus. Right. Yezhov, yeah. yeah. And this Stalin this also uses as a scapegoat <laughs> when he gets out of line. And but what, that doesn't make it any less bad, right? That's the thing. What the Stalinists do is they'll say, actually, see, Stalin wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't in charge of all of this. It was the they'll blame it either on the NKVD or you know people like Yezhov, right? Uh, and to me, it's like I don't really care if it was Stalin masterminding it or not. Um, yeah, and he did approve all point this is, stuff. Like Stalin's signature is on a lot of these orders to execute people. So it's not like he wasn't involved and he's innocent. It's just that it wasn't like a plot that he masterminded is what I'm trying to get at. But he's still yeah. responsible for it. He still has all that blood on, had all that blood on his hands. At least. Yeah, well, that that's kind of why like Stalin blaming it all on like the individual is problematic. But what the this, the weird the weird Marxist Leninists get wrong is they try to say, oh, see, it wasn't all selling there for, uh, like, you know, we can just not think about those purges anymore. We can just not think about it. And I think if anything, the fact that it was more complicated than Stalin is a bigger indictment on the Soviet Union as a whole, right? Because if you were to pin it all on Stalin, you can actually defend the Soviet Union easier. And I think it's more of an indictment of the whole structure and bureaucratic apparatus and very unregulated legal system that they built themselves, which led to this fucking tra tragedy. You know, really, that's what it was. Because this is sad, like just reading about it. Um, I mean, I would highly suggest the listeners to go check out um, Cosmopod's uh, three-hour episode on Stalin, as well as the the uh, two-hour episode on the fall of the Soviet Union. Both are really good episodes. Um, I got a good reading recommendation from the from the the older one, the 30 years one, which was Moshi Lewin's The Soviet Century. Uh, really, a really, really good read. And um, I mean, this is the thing, right? Is there are Soviet historians like, uh, you know, Moshi Lewin and George Getty, who I would say analyze the Soviet Union in good faith uh, and are not anti-communist, like Cold Warriors. Uh, at yeah, the same time, they're not apologists either. per se. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're just good historians who want to, like, look beyond this propagandistic Cold War lens, which was so dominant in the 70s. So a lot of these historians are pretty scandalous, like, when they did their research. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, though, the, the Marxist-Leninists, instead of looking at that, I find, they look just towards Grover Fur. Now, Grover Fur is, you alluded to it, but... Um, what is wrong with Groverfer's historiography? Because he's almost a meme among non-Marxist-Leninist leftists. He's like a meme. Everyone, whenever you bring him up, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah this, guy. I mean, this guy's a crackpot. But the thing Marxist-Leninists will like to tell me, they'll say, oh, explain me all the ways he's wrong. It's like, okay, would you, had you have three hours? <laughs> so well, um, we actually emailed Stephen Cohen, who's dead now, about Groverfer. And he basically said, yeah, like, you know, it was about one of his claims about Bukharin and basically that Bukharin wasn't tortured or whatever. And I think Stephen Cohen basically said, well, you know, that's 
just ridiculous. Like he was being at least at the very least, like psychologically tortured because like his family was being threatened and stuff. And so, you know, he, Stephen Cohen is a pretty solid Soviet historian and he seemed to think Grover for, so he, he kind of just seemed to kind of laugh at it. Uh, we did talk to J.R. Chigetti and he seemed to be very front. He didn't want to come on our podcast, not because he had a problem with us so much as he just has a problem with like political groups, like Stalinist groups, like using his work in misleading ways and getting him in trouble and, he didn't seem to be very fond of Grover Fur either. He's but, used uh, by Marxist Leninists, which is funny. Like Grover Fur is used um, almost. He's almost called a. He's mislabeled in my view as a. He's mislabeled as a tanky historian because he's often cited by you know certain Marxist channels. I mean, like J.R. Getty. Like J.R. Getty. Yeah. Like yeah. The Finnish, no. Yeah. That's like yeah, the Finnish Bolshevik or right? whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Yeah, they'll say like, oh, see, Stalin actually was a populist figure who was pro-democracy, and therefore we can just not think about the purges. Yeah, you're missing the point if you get that kind of um, analysis, in my opinion. Yeah, so with with that said, um, I think this brings us to a general sort of big point to touch on when it comes to Marxist-Leninist historiography, and that is kind of that everything that happened was meant to happen like uh at least under stalin <laughs> so like for example you know Mar stalin famously wrote historical and dialectical no he wrote was it dialectical and historical materialism it was called yeah um yeah and he and that sort of thinking is used to justify that the material conditions happen and thus you need to look at the contradictions and thus we what we did is according to the conditions and contradictions of the time and this is sort of used as like a self-reinforcing theory that just justifies whatever happened uh, what do you think about this sort of thinking and the way it's used to justify like for example state repression of civil liberties the banning of abortion Katyn massacre uh and as we mentioned already the red purges um, what is used to kind of justify these things? Historical materialism, like oh, yeah, or dialectical yeah. materialism. The book, you mean by Stalin, or just well, the, the book, the book, but I think more so just the, the idea of dialectical dialectical materialism is because that's you know obviously popularized that particular phrase by that Stalin book, um, but it's used as an ideology to justify these things. Right, I guess. Um... You know, this is a tough question because I think historical materialism and dialectical materialism are like two different things. Like uh, yes. you have um, like dialectical materialism is like a philosophy of science, in my opinion. I mean, it's it makes certain like ontological and epistemological and claims about the nature of reality and like the existence of reality independent of our consciousness, you know, which is you know, being determines consciousness, you know, consciousness emerges from being not the other way around. But um, also that, um, you know, reality is like, um, what's the word? Uh, it's not, it can't be simply reduced to like simple physical laws. It's a kind of um, complex, multi-layered, stratified reality where contradiction is kind of what brings things into motion. And there's all kinds of different ways of looking at dialectical materialism that have kind of been proposed by philosophers. But in my opinion, it's it's basically the kind of philosophy 
that guides theory in what is essentially at least aims to be scientific, which is historical materialism, which is you know the science of historical change and the development of modes of production and the you know the ways of um determining how transitions in history happen between modes of production, what are the class relations and relations of production that define a mode of production, what are the forces of production that are unique to modes of production, stuff like this. And so I guess, you know, to the extent that people are justifying, like, crimes done for political reasons by historical materialism, I think they're clearly misusing it. Because historical materialism is, you know, it's it's just an analysis of the of the of the uh, social formation that one is existing in, and the contradictions and potentials of development, and you know the social relations that define it, and the different modes of production that may be interacting, and all these kinds of questions. So I guess the idea to me that like this theory can be used to like justify you know, various political crimes. I think it's like, it's basically just a misuse of the theory, in my opinion. Because I guess they would say that, like, it had to happen because it was historically inevitable, right? That would kind of be the argument they made. Mm. So basically, you know, the Katyn massacre was just a... Uh, Maybe explain let's, what let's that is. Let's just take that claim <laughs> at, at, at face value. Let's say that, you know, historical materialism shows that things like the Katyn massacre had to happen. So it's, it's 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 just like well, what is the actual scientific claim being made here? That like the need to develop the forces of production in Russia required a repressive state. That is a claim I think that you can make with historical materialism. That because Russia was not capable of abolishing classes due to its low like level of development, that therefore they had to basically like maintain a level of class society in order to develop the forces of production. And this meant that the state still existed and the state still is, you know, this force of repression. And therefore, like, we can't say that that's, that's an argument I can accept. But like particular instances like the Catan massacre or the Great Purges, I think when you when people try to, like, say that those were inevitable because of historical materialism, I really think that I'd like to talk to those people and really get them to unpack, like, the causation like the, the type of causation that's going on there, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, maybe maybe just briefly talk about what the Catching Massacre was, because, um, like, you know, that's one of the hardest ones I can imagine defending to an uh, Eastern European, yeah, especially I a Polish. I haven't really looked into the details about the massacre, honestly. I've been reading Stalin's War by Jeffrey Roberts, and he mentions it, and... um you know, it was basically after, um, you know, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact where Stalin and the Nazis or Soviet Union and Nazis, Nazi Germany make a you know, non-aggression pact, which I do think is important to remember, happens after three years of the Soviets trying to get the British and the French to form a security pact against Hitler. You know, not to say that the Soviet Nazi pact is like good or anything, but I do think we have to understand in the context of the West failing to recognize the threat of Nazism or at least seeing the Soviet Union as a greater threat than Nazism. And so, you know, what happens is there's the agreement is that essentially um, Poland 
is going to kind of be split in two. The eastern part of Poland is like more Russian dominated. And so they did have like more support there, I guess. But there was still a lot of like Polish national intelligentsia types and army officers. And, uh, you know, there was just, um, you know, a massacre basically of these types by the Red Army. About 30,000. 30,000. Yeah, it was it was a lot. I don't know the exact numbers. So in a very um, in a very fast pace too, to the point where uh, um, supposedly Hitler was impressed by how. Yeah, it was the Soviet very, killing machine was. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't know all the details, but I, I think it's undeniable that something really fucked up happened. There are people who try to say that the Nazis really did it and blamed it on the Soviets. I I don't know. I think, you know, based on, like, Jeffrey Roberts, the guy who wrote Stalin's War, he's not the kind of guy who, like, believes, like, bullshit myths about Stalin. Because, like, the whole point of his book is basically that Stalin actually was a decent wartime leader. But he seems to think that Katyn is real and that that was a real thing that happened. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I think... I mean, uh, if also, it, happen, it was very bad. <laughs> the parts of history that I think are most relevant are the ones that heavily dictate uh, how we would structure socialism of the 21st century. And one of those discussions is civil liberties. Because my biggest criticism of Soviet Union um, is one that I often get called the liberal for and that is the lack of pluralism and free speech. Uh, And I think, and I think this is different from a sort of real liberal social Democrat criticism, which says, Oh, we just need more parties. Why don't you let the Republicans have a chance? Why didn't you let the czarists get, try to get elected again? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the unnecessary repression towards the speech of your own people, you know, what you can, how much they can criticize the government you know, non-violent, like I'm saying, non-violently criticize the government. To me, that shouldn't be controversial to allow that. And I think this was bad, number one, because it killed the hope of reforming socialism or for people to have a meaningful say. It ruled by fear. And three, I think, uh, well, one in the three gave bad taste in people's mouth. And four, I think it really screwed the USSR's ability to innovate technologically because they're so afraid of transparency and so, like, they didn't develop OGAS, which is a, you know, basically a program that would have developed um, something along the lines of Allende's Cybersyn project, which was you know, a cybernetic project to aid yeah, the yeah. development of central it's basically planning. Basically, the attempt to create a Soviet internet so they could plan the mm-hmm. economy better. Very interesting history behind that. Uh, I hope yeah. to um, translate something or have someone translate something about it for Cosmonauts soon, so see how that goes but uh yeah i agree with you because it's not like you know i was just like we need like open free speech and discussion and and civil liberties not because of like you know some liberal idea that like we all are like you know possessed by magical human rights so much as i just think that it's necessary for socialism to be dynamic and to be able to solve its problems. Like if we can't openly talk about the problems our society faces, then we're not going to be able to actually solve them. And so I think it's just crazy how the Soviet society, like as it develops after the Stalin years, it's, it's simultaneously very dynamic and progressive, 
Marxism is a very progressive, forward-thinking ideology, but it's at the same time a very conservative system in the sense that it's it's resistant to any kind of change. In technology, for example, there's a big problem with the ability to take technological innovations developed by the military and apply them to the civilian sector. And, you know, I don't know the exact cause of these problems and, and exact, you know, situation you know i think there are just uh, what was i, I think say? i i would i would you see the thing that marxist line has always pushed back on me when i say that the ussr had barriers to innovation is they think i'm saying that capitalism is more innovative and that's not what i'm saying because capitalism also is uninnovative and really the state is more innovative at the end of the day because it can, you know, it has an ability to issue currency. It doesn't deal with the problems of investment, you know, that private enterprise is, uh, is uh, stuck to, which like, you know, you can only invest in something if it's profitable in the short term. So like, I think the state is innovative and the USSR was innovative and so was, you know, capitalism when it used the state, right? Uh, like, I don't think capitalism is inherently more innovative than socialism in any sense, but I definitely think that um, the lack of civil liberties and fear of information was definitely detrimental to the effort to innovate. I mean, like, for example, in under Brezhnev, uh, when there was sort of a reinstitution of the Stalinist policies of, you know, suppression, um, there was a ban of photocopiers. And actually, out of all people who set, who talks about this is Paul Cockshot. And he he's a Marxist-Leninist. And I think a self-aware one in the sense that like he's or, or a historically aware one because he acknowledges that the lack of democracy. And here's, I say here democracy, not just in elections. I mean, democracy and the ability to criticize, the ability to propose new ideas, the ability for people to meaningfully change their society, right? The sovereignty of the people. That's really what I would yeah. say. Yeah. And uh, he, he openly admits that, uh, you know, a big reason why cybernetics wasn't fully developed in the USSR was because of this. Um, so to me, and also like the banning of music, all of these unnecessary things, a lot of these criticisms of the USSR, I think are very applicable to East Europe too. Uh, so, I mean, to like, what, what do you think about that? And what do you think about, um, why do you think people might defend like the suppression of civil liberties? Because that's to me the most concerning because I wouldn't want to live under a socialism that I can't even, like, I have to pretend to suck up to like the politburo and i have to i can't criticize like that's not a socialism i want like um what do you think about that in general i got i'll just to give you an idea of the i i, I made a video a podcast on the ussr and i got one one person commented saying pluralism is a dog is a and is a revisionist dog whistle you're a bukharanite revisionist <laughs> <laughs> which, which is the that's funniest thing ever but like i've seen this before and they all it's always by commented by people who have like by people who uh, are called to call themselves the commissaires people the people's commissaires or whatever you know they're basically <laughs> yeah well i don't think that pluralism is inherently liberal i think we can have a, a socialist pluralism basically and uh, I think it's a necessary thing for building a socialist society, in my opinion. I think essentially we do have to figure out how to do pluralism in a socialist context and not just fall back on liberalism. And, uh, you know, that's something I'm still thinking about, thinking about what 
pluralism means outside the context of liberalism, how maybe pre-liberal societies even had their own forms of pluralism that we can learn from. You know, I'm not, I don't know. It's 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 an open question to me, but nonetheless, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think pluralism is inherently just the liberal dog whistle. It's It's an acceptance of reality, in my opinion. It's an acceptance that a monolithic society that tries to pretend that there's a consistent a consensus is usually just going to hide the real divisions that exist in that society and prevent those divisions from being adequately expressed, maybe, so that they can be reconciled. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, one thing that is strange, and I think this is a product of the fact that we're just not educated at all on the Soviet Union. Like, uh, it's not a it's not a debate that's even allowed to be had in, ca- in capitalist educational institutions, or it's not one that many people are interested in having, even though we should. I think this history deficit leaves people with a kind of, um, like a lot of Marxist Leninists will ask almost absurd questions. Like for example, the great purges, what do you mean? Which Bolsheviks did he kill? Like to even, or they'll say one person, I literally said, name me the suppression of civil liberties that occurred under the Soviet Union. And I mean, to ask that kind of question, to me, I feel like reveals a level of historical, in extreme historical ignorance. Because, I mean, you couldn't listen to rock music, like Western rock music for a long period. Uh, it is true that some books were, you know, not available. Um, I mean... Rock music were- was really confusing because there was like... There were different approaches to it in the bureaucracy, and it's kind of like arbitrary. Like they didn't have like one position that they followed on rock music. Like they often would tolerate it, but then they would change their mind. Like I was reading this book about East Germany called The People's State. It was talking about how like they kind of had a period of cultural liberalization. And so they would have like rock guitar contests where like kids would like basically like try to like, you know play guitar and you know show who was the best or whatever and the state was actually like funding this stuff and but then like you know a couple years later the the party decides to shut it all down because this is western bourgeois deviance is creeping into our society and and so that's what gets me is the arbitrariness of it all basically is how there's basically just this it's, it's just up to the whims of the bureaucracy, how they feel essentially about whether or not you can like play rock guitar in public. And it's just a very strange system to me. And so I think, you know, the better option is to just say, okay, we're going to have free speech. But if you try to like incite violence against the government or like minority groups, like, yeah, we will have to take action. Yeah, I agree that with that too. I mean, that's this common sense law at that point. Like, if you try to violently overthrow the society, I mean, which society that exists doesn't have a law against that? Yeah. So, like that—that's defensible. But the suppression, you know, the suppression of criticism or like dissent through music or writing, just reveals a weakness of the system itself. Like, um, there's a great quote from uh, you know Jean Baudrillard, the uh, French theorist. Um, it's kind of like a post-Marxist, a kind of yeah, sort of abandoned yeah. Marxist. But uh, he had a great quote that as soon as, um, I forgot exactly what it was, but he definitely wrote it better than how I'm about to paraphrase it. But uh, he said, as soon as the East Germany built the Berlin Wall, it was already finished. 
And it's because once you build a wall to prevent people from escaping, you already kind of kill any illusion that you are a free society. Because uh, it, it reveals a sort of profound weakness, too, of the system. Like, oh, if you don't right. let people leave, it means that like the other world must be great. And if, as a result, it made people have actually borderline delusional fantasies of the West because right, they, they right. couldn't leave. So they imagined, oh, East West Germany is like this paradise. So it actually made the situation worse. But what's confusing is still to this day, Marxist Leninists will often defend the Berlin Wall and will defend these sort of uh, like policies where you cannot travel um, or like at the very least, like limited guided travels, right? Which the Soviet Union kind of had. But this is so important to me because the most common criticism I heard from people who actually lived in former communist countries, uh, most notably the ones who I've interacted with were from Romania, um, Czechoslovakia, and East Germany, DDR. And the common criticism is that we weren't able to leave. Yeah, and like, that's you know, the one yeah. thing that no one like really likes. <laughs> yeah, and that you also... Um, you had you really you really couldn't meaningfully criticize the government without saying, "Oh, I, I applaud Honecker. Honecker is doing a great job. Right, Could right. you please you do this?" Basically, I mean, and so this brings us to another question, and that is the de democracy in actually existing socialism. Because uh, you know the way the bourgeois propaganda tries to portray it is that there was no democracy at all. These were all one part, one dictatorships, one man dictatorships, or one party dictatorships. Uh, which ignores the fact that you know the CIA obviously admitted Stalin wasn't like a real dictator. There was like there's more of a one party dictatorship, um, and uh, there you know there obviously is exaggerations. And then Brett Marxist Leninists will try to go around and say actually these societies were democratic, and they often use books like um, I'm sure you heard of this one. It's so Soviet democracy by Pat Sloan. That's the one that's frequently cited by yeah. them to say actually they were democratic. What do you think about what was actually existing socialist countries? Now, this is big, but let's let's for limitation's sake say um, USSR, East Germany, and uh, the Warsaw Pact countries. Um, so this might were they like in what sense uh, were they democratic, well, and what can we learn from their yeah, experiment say, democratically? First of all, like there's diversity among the Warsaw Pact countries itself. I mean, Romania is a shithole like it's basically run by like uh you know this crazy guy Shoshesko who's just like trying to like you know create trash romanian like socialism and very repressive towards women and very much just this nationalistic um closed society that kind of um didn't seem to really care about the most progressive aspects of marxism um Czechoslovakia is interesting because you have like a movement towards a democratic socialism in the 60s coming from even within the communist party and you have like just a lot of excitement about this, this idea that we're going to make socialism have a human face that we're going to show about democracy and socialism can coexist but the soviet union is worried that the west is going to subvert this movement so they send in the tanks and you know they crush the Prague spring which is kind of also like I would say that more than the coming down of the, of the building of the Berlin Wall was kind of the end because it showed that like that urge, that, that desire to reform socialism that existed within, you know, these countries, this desire to move forward towards the final goal was very much just that these societies could just crush that if they decided it was too out of line. And 
And so the hope that you know these societies will develop in a more democratic and socialist direction is kind of basically um, stamped out. And so, you know, were these countries democratic? I think uh, the term that I like that I've heard used for the DDR for East Germany is a participatory dictatorship. Because it does show that like people actually did participate a lot in the social structures and in, even in political structures, and that you did have like these mass organizations where people actually did you know have a voice and were able to like you know criticize things and now if you did have like a, some levels of like democratic deliberation in the society, but it just wasn't enough to actually uh, you know to actually be called. A democratic republic in my opinion accurately but i think yeah the term participatory dictatorship i think kind of captures like a uh, dynamics like in the der when they redid the constitution in like 1970 like they did actually like have a lot of um public input and stuff so they actually did like try to involve the public in politics and try to like you know involve public opinion and stuff so yeah i mean i think uh I, I I agree that there was me there was participation. Um, like that's a I I have read uh, Pat Sloan's book Soviet Democracy, which isn't really like that much of an academic book. It's more like his account from visiting the USSR. Yeah, I've and seen he, it before, and it seemed and, and he it was super propagandistic. It's not an academic source at all, but it's interesting. And he wrote it with the help of Soviet authorities too. But okay. uh, from what I gathered is that there was participation. Like for example. Um, like you could, you could be like a, a regular factory worker and be elected in the government. The problem is, is you would be part of the legislator that couldn't really propose its own legislation. Like it was a legislator where that was more like the legit actually policy was made by the Politburo and passed down to the legislative body who would vote. So like people voted on stuff, but they didn't actually get to choose what to vote on. So it was like, is that really meaningfully? democratic and also i mean we also especially under the sun years i'd say it was even less meaningfully democratic because sometimes these elections were just a test of your loyalty to stalin because like if you were if you did disagree you would immediately be su uh, suspected by the secret police and like you know there's that famous clip that everyone likes to joke about is like that about everyone was clapping after the stalin speech and everyone was afraid to stop clapping and, and like the last one, because the last one to be uh, stop clapping would be suspected by the secret police. And I mean, there's some truth to this stuff. Like we have it's to take this kind of society. Like it's it's just you know, I think of it as this: like you have societies that are very much formed in very difficult circumstances, and they're focused on catching up with the West. They have this this constant kind of um. What's the word? It's kind of kind of like a lack, I guess. That you know, they, they, there's just this obsession with you know developing at the same pace as the West and getting people the same consumer goods as in the West, of getting people the same like standard of living in the West, and we're just always playing catch up with the West is the thing. And so there's this kind of like paranoia and this kind of almost like resentment towards the West. And there's just this feeling that, like, you know, we need to keep it out of our society. So we need to, like, have these strong censorship regimes because we're in, like, a kind of 
Cold War situation where, you know, we kind of are a fortress that's under siege and, you know, we need to protect ourselves and protect, you know, the, the gains of socialism and from subversion and stuff. So we need to have a, a strong security state that will keep everything in line. And I think, you know, to some extent, like it's, it's inevitable that you have like a security state in a situation like that of a cold war, but it just, it went way too far and it became the self-perpetuating like political culture that stifled the actual process of building socialism. I want to touch on the red purges again, because I think there's something that speaks to the Stalinist mentality. And that is, um, and the like when I say Stalinist, I, this includes the Maoists, because in my opinion, the Maoists are the most sophisticated Stalinists. <laughs> That's compliment and a diss. Uh, but the I can't, I think we often hear is that um, Maoists, especially, will say, How could we have prevented the Soviet Union uh, from ending up the way it did? And one is that we should have persecuted more capitalist rotors. So there's essentially this assumption that we need more secret police control or you know i prefer at least the maoists will say like we we can have like this sort of persecution but from the people like yeah the cultural cultural revolution yeah which is like this kind of democratic inverted totalitarianism (laughs) yeah yeah um it's an interesting like attempt to like do what democracy is supposed to kind of do (laughs) yeah it's like um I don't know, it reminds me also the way that anarchists say that they want to persecute capitalists is like it's fine as long as there's no authority doing it, but we can like persecute. Yeah, we can people. like randomly kill capitalists, but if we put them on trial, you know, it's that's evil and bad as a state. But we can just like randomly kill people, and that's good. Yeah, I'm a statist in this regard. I prefer law, good trials. I yeah, think if yeah, anything, I think if, that's if, if anything, that... it was like if you are accused of a crime. There needs to be a public trial that you know is that be, be contested. You know, that's just I, I think um, even if it's the most terrible crime, people have the right to due process. You know, or at least they should have that right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Marx was a fan of that. That's the thing. What I find is a lot of Marxist Leninists confuse anti-capitalism with anti-liberalism because um because like marx liked the french revolution and he thought bourgeois freedoms were a progress right i mean marx wouldn't really have been able to probably exist if it weren't for some of bismarck's you know liberalizations arguably right because if if marx lived if marx lived under kaiser the second or hitler he would have got you would got shot for sure right i think it's like marxism is it comes out of the contradictions of the enlightenment and it, it is very much like kind of based in the tradition of the radical enlightenment, you know, as opposed to like the more moderate enlightenment of like Voltaire or Kant. And you kind of have the uh, tradition that's kind of begun by Spinoza of this kind of radical project of, you know, taking down false authorities and, and liberating human potential. And, um, you know, I think it's that part of the Enlightenment that Marx is very much uh, following. And I think Marx's critique of liberalism is that they always hold private property, private property above democracy and the broader struggle against autocracy. And yeah, then you get the split between the liberalism and... The aspect of liberalism and also the kind of individualistic, narrow-minded approach and... But, you know, there's a lot of bad things about liberalism, but Marx isn't against 
what is commonly understood as a liberal rights, you know. Well, that's the split also between republicanism and liberalism, right? And you call right. yourself a Republican Marxist. What does that what does that mean exactly? Well, I think like I said, like Marx is very much like coming from this enlightenment tradition. And I think you have a split between republicanism and, and liberalism that kind of develops out of the French Revolution. You know, the more moderate factions of the French Revolution who want a, a constitutional monarchy, who want to can hold back revolutionary change and maintain elements of the autocracy and hold the idea of constitutional rule of law above all else versus republicanism, which holds the sovereignty of the people as expressed through the, you know, the most uh, popular sovereign body, which is, you know, ideally should be directly elected by universal suffrage as the highest form of authority as opposed to like the rule of law. So essentially, like republic, a democratic republic is the sovereignty of the people above all else. Mm. I think that's what Marx's position is. You know, he believes that you have to get rid of like the separation of powers and instead have the highest authority in your state be the kind of national assembly that's, that's elected by you know the commoners. I think something that definitely gets. We we alluded to this in uh, our previous conversation, and that was sometimes the Marxist-Leninist narratives are strengthened and enabled by the f- kind of bad critiques sometimes of anarchists right. and, um, and liberals. Uh, for particularly one I find to be a w- annoying critique is that the, all of USSR's problems can boil down to centralization and that decentralization were to fix things this right. was actually an idea that even circulated in the ussr at one point oh yeah no um, that was totally like um a lot of the crew gorbachev reforms gorbachev reform, yeah exactly yeah and other reforms were all about this idea that decentralization would fix everything but you know yeah and um the thing is is i think it's good to distinguish centralization and like liberty because you can be decentralized and have the lack of civil liberties. Like I would argue, for example, you tend to notice with Republicans in the United States, like the right, obviously like right-wing Republicans in the USA, like the Republican party, GOP, they are usually pro more pro decentralization, but I would actually argue they're more also illiberal socially. Like if you look at this idea that you can allow States to make their own abortion laws, that's more decentralization, right? Literally because it's States rights, but it's more illiberal because you know, you're restricting someone's right to uh, bodily processes. Right, right. right. So it's, um, you know, I, I think for me, the USSR needed more liberty, uh, not necessarily more decentralization. Like more Republican um, liberty is what I would say. Yeah, more Republican. Well, that's the, I, I mean liberty in the, the original sense of the word, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, friend, like the French Revolution sense, not private property liberty. Uh, like that's the like state that's, is actually an expression of people getting together and doing politics and, and expressing their needs, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like not the Lockean idea of liberty, which is very much more steeped into private property rights, uh, but like the kind of liberty that Marx also liked. And I think um, this the problem with anti-liberalism is that it it instead of anti-capitalism is that it. Um, I think it's just frankly unmarxist <laughs> because it, it it can be also used to justify dangerous things like it can have a very bad legal system lead to a bad legal system. Uh, but also I think like to have a really good democratic centralism, I think we need to let people breathe. 
um, because I am a pro democratic centralism at the end of the day, I think to deal with climate change, to deal with all these big issues, we're going to have more viruses, probably you need fast action and there's strength in that, uh, in the order in society, rather than having all these like many little states have their separate government, right. yeah. lead to more chaos. Like I'm for a democratic centralism, but for that centralism to be truly democratic, I think there needs to like, you can't persecute your own people, if that makes sense. They can't always be like when I when I read up about East Germany and the environment they cultivated where it was you were encouraged to like snitch on your neighbors because you would get like a sort of social capital, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and it, it was also like literally horrible. seen as like defending the revolution. I, I think people would say, oh, this, you know, person is, you know you know, pretty suspicious. I think they're involved in, you know, some Western spy plot, you know, then West, they want to take away everything we've accomplished and built. And then, you know, and so I'm going to, you know, I want to be like an active citizen who's, uh, you know, defending the revolution, you know, so that's kind of the mentality. I think a lot of people underestimate how much that mentality was, uh, you know, common in, you know, like say East Germany or something. It really sucks. I mean, and one one thing that they justify this by is they say when Gorbachev did liberalize, right, everything fell apart. And they try to say that, use that as to say, oh, it was all Gorbachev's fault. And I think Gorbachev's, um, I think I was, for, I would be for Glasnost. I think Perestroika was like a big failure because he basically enabled the right wing to form parties and to like right control the press, right? He literally gave fascists like a, media presence which i think was completely stupid yeah he like, went too far in like basically like publishing right-wingers in official communist publications <laughs> he was he was more democratic than like pretty much it's weird like he had a liberal he almost was influenced by the west but he was way more democratic to his, to a fault than the west yeah because like no. do, do the where in what western country do they like publish communists in the mainstream news whereas gorbachev was allowing like Right, pro capitalists, like completely, an, complete anti-communists, not even reformers. Yeah, to be I was published. like this whole like thing is like we're going to prove that we're more democratic in the West, which is like I I, I actually kind of like that idea in the abstract, and I do like that idea in the abstract. But there's a a thing that happens when you take a, an idea and you put it into practice is you come into contact with the messy reality of the situation that you're in. That's full of things that are completely beyond your control. And so I think, you know, in the process of trying to like make the Soviet Union more democratic, you know, Gorbachev made a lot of major errors. And I think, you know, he essentially let the, uh, the capitalists take the country back in front of his own eyes. Yeah. And but I, I think, think uh, you know, on one end, though, he also revealed how weak the system was. Right. But it revealed how weak the system was. And it revealed how depoliticized the working class was because the working class didn't really mobilize as a mass, you know, subject in order to protect, you know, nationalized industries and all the benefits of the Soviet system. And so I think that was a, a big problem with what happens when, you know, you just have a bureaucracy that does politics for everyone and everyone else is just kind of like a passive onlooker. And yes, you know, there are attempts to involve the masses in the state and involve their participation, but you can only participate in very narrow ways that are defined by the state. And so it doesn't seem like that the state is actually like a democratic expression of the people's will, basically. 
one, one criticism Parenti, Michael Parenti, who's often labeled as like a Marxist Leninist, uh, and um, I don't think he's a Stalinist because he, he actually know, isn't. He actually has, yeah, like he a really isn't. Stalin. He, he's Michael Parenti is, is much more balanced than people think he is, yeah, uh, yeah but, you're totally right. But uh, he has a chapter in Black Shirts and Reds called Communism in Wonderland, and he has a part in there where he talks about how. Um, because the media in the USSR was so one-sided and often hyperbolically um, ridiculous in its coverage of the West, because it would often take pictures of the Great Depression and make it seem like that was always what the West was like. Right, right. Uh, and, and it would talk about, uh, it would often exaggerate it. And because it was so one-sided, uh, people stopped believing the media. And people yeah. stopped believing the media, even when it was saying the truth. Like Sometimes they would say true things about the West or about the Soviet system being better in certain respects and the people just didn't believe it. And when you create that kind of demoralization, like it's just, of course, yeah, like Gorbachev exposed the weakness because of that, uh, that sort of state media control. I think like this is, I'm really critical of, you know, I'm against, I don't think corporate media leads to free press. I'm not like this kind of liberal that you should have like a fucking uh, corporately owned media. Like I think I made a big mistake of allowing, you know, business moguls to own the media. But um, I think state media is also dangerous. I'm more of a fan of like worker-owned media, like the journalists and the producers and the people at the, you know, um, at the facilities actually like own it themselves, because I think like that then you truly have that is like owned by the people, I guess, um, because then you can actually have meaningful critiques of the state. Um, and yeah, like I don't know what do what do. What do you think about that in terms of the media and the suppress, like the um, overbearing control, and maybe how that played into the fall of the Soviet Union? Because I know the the Marxist Leninists like to say that Glasnost, it all fell apart, and it's almost kind of them admission admitting that the system required force, because as soon as that force was taken off, it fell right. apart. Well, it's like. You got a society that's like with a leadership that kind of sees themselves under siege, basically. And they're obsessed with catching up with the West, but it's point of a kind of neurotic about it. They have these like political traditions of the Stalinized common turn and their political structures. And so you have a very like you have a mix that creates a very paranoid and and um in many cases repressive society. And I think um, like what you're saying about the media, um, Victor Grossman, he was an American guy who defected the East Germany after World War II because the American government was going after him for being a communist and he got drafted into the military. And so he basically decided to defect. And he writes about that too, basically saying like, you know, he's actually very like fond of a lot of things about East Germany, very much misses it, but he does criticize it similar to what you were saying before about how the media kind of just exaggerated the West and didn't really have like good coverage of the West and understanding like the complexities and whatnot. And it's just kind of, we need to hide this world from our people because it's going to give them bad ideas and bad ideas can't come in. You know, the West is, it's, it just becomes this paranoia. And um, I mean, I can understand why they wouldn't want like the West to dominate their culture. Why would they wouldn't want want to create their own kind of culture away from the West and and not just kind of copy the West, even though they're obsessed with catching up with them economically. But I think that um, 
the kind of universalistic project of Marxism does kind of clash with the kind of um, Soviet xenophobia that I'm getting at here with like the idea that we need to keep the West out or we need to keep our people safe from these ideas, whatnot. And I think it um it's essentially this idea that like everything produced by modern capitalism is completely decadent, like all of the kind of like cultural treasures of the past that were created by various class societies are all just um you know they they they've been um exhausted and now only socialism can produce like true human culture and so i think there's this kind of opposition to like learning from culture in the west and stuff that could have helped them kind of um you know dialectically in the sense of a dialogue they develop themselves you know it shows but, a profound distrust in the masses yeah, it shows a profound distrust in the masses. I mean, that's pretty much as close as I will get to like kind of defending the West. It's like, you know, not everything there was terrible and bad and evil that needed to be kept out, you know. And so the and more the social democrats weren't all fascists, the more people just like are gonna look to the West as an alternative and want to move there because they got those cheap consumer goods and you know, but it's also uh you know, very bankrupt society, you know, and a lot of people regret mm -hmm. the fall of socialism because, you know, they, they wanted the good things from the West, but not all the bad things. Like that movie, Good by Lenin, there's a, there's a quote that goes along the lines of like, well, do we really need to copy like every shitty thing about the West now that the wall is gone? Mm -hmm. But that kind of was like what happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, w one thing reoccurring thing I have heard from people who, um, who live in the Soviet Union is like a lot of people and well, East, I'll say actually existing socialism because this includes East Germany, Czech, Slovakia, and uh, the DDR and, and Romania, actually even Romania, like there's Romanians who look fondly on some of the things they had. Like, for example, like you could get paid to do a PhD, not just like do a, not just have it free, uh, but you would actually get paid. Like it would be a job. And that's, you know, the, there were like these great accomplishments but I think that Marxist Leninists often use whataboutism uh, to kind of like they use the successes to to neglect or to justify the the excesses, and so they'll say like one thing <laughs> when I talked about the lack of civil liberties, someone commented they said, but the Soviet Union gave everyone housing and healthcare and all that. And it's like, yeah, I'm not saying they didn't do that. Like that's great, you know, but you can't. I don't know why there's this attempt in the historical narrative to try to say that what the excesses were necessary. It's really just yeah, weird to I mean, me. It's not good for a politics, I don't think, because don't like, especially in countries like America, Canada, Britain, which are very much like ideologically liberal, uh, we shouldn't criticize our systems by saying we should have no civil liberties. We should say that our countries don't actually say, do what they say to do. Like we don't actually have, we haven't, fulfilled democracy to its full potential uh, right. and we have like i think that's more of a powerful argument rather than saying oh this liberty is completely pointless that's just right right that socialism never was able to live up to its full potential like we can still appreciate and recognize the accomplishments and the revolutionary spirit but it was never able to truly realize its full potential and that's just the reality of the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. The Eastern Bloc collapsed. 
I really do think it collapsed. Wrong. Clearly, there was a major flaw. But we need. But to what they will say though is that they often say they'll correct you and they'll say um, it didn't collapse; it was murdered. Because there's this idea. It's somewhat true. It says somewhat. It's true, somewhat. It is somewhat true in why Russia. Why did it happen? It's what? true for it's true for the Soviet Union, but not for the East Bloc. Like for the East Bloc, I think it really did collapse. Whereas, like in the Soviet Union, you could say Yeltsin and Gorbachev. Well, Gorbachev paved the way for Yeltsin, and Yeltsin literally murdered the Soviet Union undemocratically. But in the Eastern Bloc, like I think it literally did collapse. Like you know, especially like let's look at DDR, Czechoslovakia, Poland. Yeah, I mean, Poland Romania. is like the case where it's the most. Um... And Hungary, and Hungary. Right. Hungary also is a very big tragedy because they had a, they actually had socialism come to power on their own without the help of the USSR, kind of. So for that to collapse is also kind of a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, an- another thing this also brings us to the narrative is um, it's back to the Red Purges a little bit, but it's because I, I don't know if you've heard this, you've seen this video circulate on Twitter, but there's this video of this old Russian man who says like, Stalin, uh, what do you think of Stalin? He said, I like him. And then they said, uh, it was translated, it was Russian, but translated in English. And he said, oh, Stalin killed a lot of people. And he's like, Stalin didn't kill enough people. And he's like, what makes you say that? And he's like, because Gorbachev's father was a kulak, and Gorbachev ruined the Soviet Union. Oh my god! I mean that kind. Of, but the thing is, you see this like get like eight thousand likes, right? For yeah, I mean it's just terrible history. optics for people who aren't already convinced. Yeah. I mean, but what does that say about what, what do you? What does that reveal though about the Marxist-Leninist mentality that everything could have been fine if you just purged the baddies? Yeah, it's just insanity. Like it's just. Like... <laughs> I really wish people wouldn't say stuff like that because, like, we already get called like bloodthirsty monsters by the bourgeois press. So, like, why would we, you know, accept that and 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 go along with it? But yeah, like, uh, I mean, it's it's just cope as well. Like, it's 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 uh, like I said, these problems are institutional. Even like the purges, like the idea that it was just a matter of like getting rid of the bad people. It's just wrong because you have to look at the institutions that allow the bad people and the power and give them power in the first place, you know? And so it's, it's really a question of social structures and institutions, not just like getting rid of bad people. Like I just, I think that, and that's the problem is because they think the Soviet union was already like a fully socialist society or was already like, you know, the, they already got there basically. Like they kind of already achieved this um, classless society, this, system that needed to be defended and was already like kind of um beyond contradictions i guess so if you if you if you believe that then you're not going to be like willing to look at the problems and contradictions of the social structures and instead you're just going to see the problem as like you know bad people who need to be purged i mean that's worth interrogating right there uh i want to really get your thoughts on this and that is one thing I noticed with Marxist Leninists is that they vehemently argue that the dictatorship of the proletariat is socialism or is low phase communism. What yeah, do you think about I, this um, debate? I I think the whole debate is really stupid from both sides. Okay. Like here's what because I the, think. And the other side and being what like Trotsky. Well, socialism equals communism, and there's only one correct definition of the word socialism. First of all, like 
no word has a meaning that exists in some ideal sphere of forms outside of its context. Like if, if I you, agree, but they mean what they try to say, Marx justified this. Right. Well, like Marx, Marx doesn't that. really, he uses the word socialism in different ways throughout his work, depending on the context. He never like says, okay, this is the definition of socialism. You know, there are times where he uses socialism as just another word for communism. There are times when he uses socialism to relate to refer to um his various political opponents who he thinks are, you know, in cold and you know, in the fraud of bourgeois ideas. And uh my take on it is like, okay, socialism is a economic form. It's not the the dictatorship of the proletariat describes what class the class character essentially of the state and so i think um what you have is you have a transitional period and i'm fine with calling this socialism i'm fine with not calling it socialism but there is a period of transition where you have the remains of capitalism and then you have a nascent growing communist mode of production or socialist mode of production whatever you want to call it and in this historical situation, the, the proletariat holds class power. The dictatorship of the proletariat is just describing what class holds power. It's not describing the, the character of the economy. But in the transition, the character of the economy is not one mode of production. It's what also Sarah calls an articulation of different modes of production. It's like I said before, it's um, a growing communism or what if you want to use socialism, you know, say the same thing and it's a dying capitalism but they are both kind of um existing with each other in an awkward relationship and the idea is that over time eventually socialism becomes dominant and the and the state is no longer necessary but um so i think um a lot of marxist leninists like do use the word socialism in a kind of opportunistic way like i was saying earlier how it's like well, Stalin, you know, created socialism. So, you know, it's just a matter of getting rid of the revisionist who would go against socialism. But I think there were still contradictions in that society. There were still class contradictions in that society. They still had it over fully overcome capitalism. I don't think it was per se a capitalist society, but I don't think they had transcended capitalism. And I think... Um, so the way that socialism is used as a kind of like justify like a stagnation of, of the society and deny the need for um you know real radical change even in you know under the late Stalin era was yeah it's opportunistic but like I said like words depend on context like if I you know say something is socialist like I I think a lot of I I think when a lot of ML say something is socialist they don't mean that they've achieved socialism, like at least for like the more like well-read MLs, they mean that there's a socialist government that is building socialism, and hmm. I, that's, well, that's you know, and so I think like when we argue with MLs about this topic, I think it's better to just kind of use their own definitions, and hmm. then show how they're wrong rather than try to like change their definitions because their definitions are wrong. Because I think it's more important to look at the content of what they're saying than like kind of nitpick over the correct use of words. And I've gotten a lot of shit for disposition, and people have called me like a Stalinist or whatever. But I just think <laughs> that um, it's it's in these kind of semantic debates, it's better to have like a non dogmatic approach to language. 
Well, I would agree with you in that I don't think anyone monopolizes any word. Uh, and I, I actually think, you know, who does a good job of the whole what is socialism debate is Richard Wolff's book, What is What is Socialism? Uh, that was one of his, I think, older books. It was not that old, but like it's before the Democracy at Work one. Like it's a, it's a pretty good book, like honestly. Uh, and yeah, I like Richard he, Wolf, honestly. And he, uh, in, the, in that book, he says like, well, no one really has the claim to socialism, but there is a Marxist definition of it, right? And he looks at critique of the Gotha program and he looks at Lenin's, uh, you know, taking that up again in State and Revolution. And, um, you know, there's like, he delineates socialists and tendencies. So sometimes people just use the word socialist to describe like any country that is ostensibly working towards socialism or has a socialist leadership uh, versus what Marx meant by socialism, which is kind of what he used uh, interchangeably with low phase communism. Right. So there's that ver definition. So I think, you know, if someone says like, oh, the USSR was socialist in tendency, I would never disagree with that, right? But then if you were to say that if they're low-phase communists, I mean, that, that, that in a Marxist definition, in terms of what he says in critique of the Gotha program, wouldn't that require it to be classless? So then to argue that USSR was low-phase communist, as Khrushchev did also, Khrushchev also said it was, they achieved low-phase communism, even said they were in the mature phase of it. Um, that would require it to be classless. And does that look like a classless society? To me, it doesn't. There was like a party elite. And I don't even think personally workers really, I mean, there's what do you also, there's also the debate because I think the big 10 socialists like to define, um, like we should, they like to define socialism as workers owning the means of production. And if we are to use that, I mean, you can, arguments have been made that like um, Richard Wolff makes this argument himself in the, that book that, I mean, legally, the, the the workers in the Soviet Union did own the means of production in the sense that it was collective, but did they really own it because they still, there was a, the same relationship between employers and employees minus the surplus extraction. Right, yeah. There like, was still um, like bosses telling workers what to do. Was there really worker democracy there? Like, so, I mean, these, Yeah, it's like you had like property like owned by the working class and law or whatever, but it wasn't, was it actually sub substantive like control or the means of production? Like, I don't think we achieved that yet. Yeah, and but the thing is with the Marxist-Leninist and anti-revisionist views is, uh, well, one, the 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 official communism, ones we described at the start, like who think everything that is run by a party, they'll say that socialism is just a transitionary state. And I do take issue with this because where do we draw the line? Like, I mean, you know, Saddam Hussein also claimed to be socialist. Literally, like he did. And you have China claim to be going towards socialism, and maybe that's true, but maybe, like, whatever, it, like, it's kind of an unfalsifiable claim, and how meaningfully is it? Because if we call social China socialist today, I mean, they don't even have a, they don't even have free healthcare or a job. Right, care. I mean, it's like, I would look at it and say, okay, is China moving towards socializing the means of production and overcoming capitalism, or is it moving towards capitalism, or is it kind of stagnating? And my first impression has been that it's been moving towards capitalism, that the motion, the direction historically does, you know, it seems to be capitalism, you know? So I think um, I could be wrong, though. And I think it's like you just have to you have to study the question. You have to look at the society and look at the tendencies and contradictions and the power structures and you know, who controls who and stuff like that and, and, and look at it in motion and change. As, as as these things flow through history and uh 
so I don't I don't think you can answer the question by um, having a, a correct definition of socialism. I think it's it's all very context dependent. And I think someone being a socialist doesn't even mean that they're like good. Like you can like well, for example, yeah. the Communist Manifesto, Marx talks about bourgeois socialists, petty bourgeois socialists, feudal mm. socialist, uh, utopian socialist. So I think one thing we should maybe consider is that not all socialism is good. Right? Yeah, I would I would agree. You know? <laughs> well, Chichesco socialism certainly Yeah, it's it's certainly not proletarian was, socialism. Yeah. I think maybe there's different types of socialism. Like there's proletarian scientific socialism, which we, we want. But then there's like pay bourgeois bureaucratic socialism, which is like what you said, Chichesco. And so um, you know. Well, I mean, this is the thing. If we take socialism to be the government doing stuff, I mean, and, or uh, that it's whatever, it calls itself socialist. Saddam Hussein had a very similar type of economic system to that of East Europe. Like the state controlled, I think, like almost almost all of like industry. Like, yeah, really, I mean, like, Baathism sees itself as a type of socialism. Mm -hmm. But I would say is like, okay, what is... The class character of this socialism you know is it a prolet is it proletarian socialism about establishing a dictatorship to proletariat clearly not is it socialism well, i guess it's a type of socialism but it's not our socialism or and is it capitalism well there's still a lot of capitalism here even though there's a lot of nationalized industry but like i said before it's like we got to look at the specific example and, and study what's going on there economically and politically and you know then draw conclusions based on uh, our own political projects, you know? And I so think... The, uh, so you can talk, sorry. Oh, yeah, well, the, the, what you just said, actually, about like whether it's a class character, like whether it's proletarian or not, is often what the point Maoists bring up. But I also find that to be a, almost kind of flawed when held to examination because they'll say, okay, they'll say socialism is the intensification of classes. That the class the class struggle actually intensifies under socialism, um, and they often, in my opinion, they use this to kind of just justify the further expropriation of any sort of reformist or any sort of person who does disagrees with the anti-revisionist line. Uh, but you know, the the Maoists tend to think, um, which I think are the the pinnacle of anti-revisionism, because they're the anti-revisionists who really take their own thoughts seriously. Hence, why I have a degree of respect for the Maoists more than the uh, official communists. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, so like, but I had our, you know, I noticed the Maoists, they say actually that all of the official communist countries today are state capitalists, which is interesting yeah. to me because they all have very different systems. Like Cuba, for example, they call Cuba a state capitalist and China state capitalist. In my opinion, I wouldn't call Cuba a state capitalist, um, but they call, I asked why uh, Cuba is, I wouldn't call it socialist either, <laughs> but they call it state capitalist. And I say, why is that? And they said, and I, and I said, because uh, you know, Cuba is still overwhelmingly um, state controls most industry. They, you know, there's limited markets available, but the only difference is that now they're legal. Before they were private, uh, like uh, black markets. Um, in, in Cuba, it's not like capitalism is a dominant mode of production. Like uh, yeah. there's no stock market like there is in uh, Vietnam or China. So I asked them, why is Cuba a state capitalist? And they said, well, you can look at the class character of the state. Yeah, the argument is that it's like because the Communist Party were like revisionist or whatever, like because they sided with the Soviet Union and this, you know, Soviet split, they were politically revisionist. 
that means that the um you know the working class isn't in control there. But that's what I that's kind of where my point about actually looking at the system, looking at who holds power, looking at the institutions, looking at the social contradictions and the conflicts and all these kind of economic, political, and ideological questions. And you know, the Maoists, I don't think they really do this. They're just like applying the categories they've learned almost in an a priori way. Like they're not studying the Cuban system and looking at it and trying to understand how it works and what whatnot. They're they're just saying, okay, look at the leadership of their party. It's it's revisionist. So therefore, you know, state capitalism. And then go on to the next country and say, okay, well, they're revisionists because of this. And it's just it's not the real kind of historical materialist analysis that, that Marxism is supposed to be built on. And I will say, listen, there are smart MLs. There are MLs like of course. I, yeah. I mean, I might be an ML in some ways. Like I wanted to mention, like two of the biggest influences on my current politics are Marxist-Leninist journals or publications that came out in the seventies and eighties. First one is called Theoretical Review. They were basically a, a group that came out of the new communist movement in the United States, which was very like Maoist, anti-revisionist dominated. But they studied all this stuff and they actually took theory seriously and just didn't believe in like doing mindless activism to build your sect that will one day be the party. They believe that like we need to actually like have the left talk to itself about theory and then take theory seriously. And so they did that. They came to the conclusion that, like, well, if we're actually Marxist revisionists, Marxist Leninists, well, we have to include Stalin as a revisionist, and and we they started looking at Bukharin, they started looking at Althusser, and you know, they're looking at like um different Latin American Marxists and stuff, and actually looking at you know theory in a serious way, and actually trying to like build Marxism as a serious school of thought, and um, you know, they published a lot of really good stuff and then there's um another publication the leninists from britain who were um you know anti-revisionist len marxist leninists in the communist party of great britain who basically opposed both the uh they started out as stalinists but as things went on and as they developed their views they started to develop a critique of stalinism as well as a critique of the euro communism the kind of reformist social democratic trends that were growing in the Communist Party of Great Britain. Mm. And so I think, honestly, like, self-critical MLs, like dissident MLs, are honestly some of my favorite Marxists. Because... Do you have any good recommendations? Yeah, I'll send you... Um, I, I recommend just um, go to the Theoretical Reviews page on the Marxist Internet Archive, and it's all on there. And they just explore it. There's a ton of fascinating stuff there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh... I like to sometimes say is I like Marx and Lenin, but I don't consider myself a Marxist Leninist. And that's right, right. That term never didn't really wasn't really widely used until Stalin, right? You know, the in the the foundations of Leninism. Uh, because before like Lenin didn't call himself a Leninist, he was just like a Marxist. In my opinion, like there's not really a difference between Leninism and Marxism, other than the fact that there's the right. party and and uh also the idea that you can have revolution in the third world. I think those are the, really the two things that differentiate Marxism, Leninism. But other than that, there isn't a huge difference. I just don't like the term because it's associated so much with official Marxism in the Stalin era. Um, and, you know, official Marxism after the Stalin, right? Because they Soviet leadership called themselves Marxist-Leninist. Khrushchev called himself that too. Gorbachev called himself that. 
Ding and uh, Xi Jinping call themselves that. They have a so yeah. This yeah, I mean, it's that. really just more of like a symbolic kind of like um, it's a way of like um, kind of showing your what team you're on, so that you're like signaling like your loyalty to a broader movement almost. Like, so it's I mean, interesting that like, some like, MLs like you know they don't necessarily like abandon the term Marxism-Leninism, but essentially they develop it to a point where they've kind of um, broken with a lot of the more dogmatic aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, you, you I just want to touch on the thing you mentioned about Cuba, though, is um, like I think the, the thing about whether the government is a class dictatorship or, or not itself isn't really enough to really delineate whether it's socialist because i do believe like cuba and the ussr were like real dictatorships of the proletariat like um you know khrushchev comes from like a really like poor background brezhnev too these are like working class people and same with like even cuba now is filled overwhelmingly with workers um i mean like to me like that yeah you can you can have worker run capitalism and also you can have a system that's not capitalist or socialist it right. can be like a mode of in between or whatever. Um, because like for example, to me, you can't have this capitalist system with without a stock market. Like, so like in that way, I can't call Cuba a capitalist, right? Because there's no way. How do you get like foreign investment and investment into like you need a mart stock market? Uh markets themselves are not social, are not capitalism, in my view. But this isn't actually I f- forgot to ask. This is the I always wondered like I was forgetting something, but uh the one thing Marxist Leninists like to associate markets with capitalism and why we need to kind of, they were very hostile to like Bukharin's ideas of the alliance with the peasantry and that peasants can like sell things on a market. Um, like, what, what do you think about like the idea of markets under socialism? I think neither, I think both of us, we would both agree that markets have their problems and we're neither of us are probably like pro market people or whatever. But like, you know, it's worth saying that all these actually existing socialist countries had markets they're black markets yeah most of the time so like what do you think about the marks the anti-revisionist view that you cannot have like you have to almost speed road to socialism and that it's better the more the less capitalistic it is and their idea of less capitalistic is less markets people living in yeah, communes yeah. yeah what do you think about that i mean i don't think we should be dogmatic about um like immediately abolishing markets and like acting like any existence of a market just needs to be stamped out as soon as possible because threat to the success of socialism or whatever. I think um, I'm more for a cautious transition. Obviously we should like, you know, be daring in what we wish to accomplish, but we should also be very careful. Bukharanist. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm basically a Bukharanist on this question. Like I, agree. I think markets wither away like the state withers away. You know, I think of it more like that. It's like as we go further into socialism and collectivize more stuff and increase the level of social like planning and social coordination outside the market, that markets will just become less and less a social phenomena that is even a thing. Like it will just um, like as we socialize more and more, markets will kind of just die out, but it won't be through like, you know a strict repression of like any kind of commercial activity it will be more gradual and just an increasing hold of socialism and planning over the uh, existence of markets and stuff 
I think that's a really interesting way to look at it because I, I think economically it's impossible to quote unquote abolish markets because unless you have a way of meeting the demands that markets meet in a superior way, like planning, right? We need, we need to make planning better. Markets will exist anyway because the nature of why markets arise anyways because there's certain demands the public has and then some people figure out how to profit from it, right? And most of that profit isn't like production, which is the way capitalist markets are characterized as production and extraction of surplus value. But most markets historically, pre-capitalist markets are uh, really circulation. So you like, you know, yeah. you find something and you sell it somewhere else. Uh, and like, this is a lot of the markets where like, you know, usually very small producers, like not, uh, not usually people extracting surplus value, but you know, people finding a way to profit off of demands. And it's a form of commerce, but it's not really a form of capitalism. But it has its problems too, right? Because markets will only redistribute goods to the highest bidder. So by right. nature, yeah, I think like markets are inherently bad in a lot of ways, but they are a expression of a deeper problem, which is um, Demand, you know, the, of the, the separation of the producers from the means of production and from each other through the existence of private property, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's why I don't think they can be abolished because they're a symptom of like of something. And to really make markets obsolete requires demands being met. Like yeah. for example, you wouldn't have black ge black markets in the Soviet Union where people are selling jeans on the side if it right. was Yeah, I think it's, if it's, that it's, was met by planning. It's better to have like those markets be out in the open and be like regulated and controlled than the being like black markets, basically. I mean, in some of the outlawing of commercial activity, I think I found, I just think to this be wrong and a really dogmatic idea of socialism. Like for example, Cuba, right? Uh, I've been to Cuba twice in my life. And one, one thing I noticed is that restaurants do exist in Cuba, right? Yeah. They have a law where you can only have like something like, I think two employees or something, or else it has to be a collective or a cooperative uh some of the like laws that. like that that's, so, that's a good law in my opinion yeah like i think he has pretty good laws when it comes to markets and stuff like they they were able to liberalize without the degree that china did you know and i'm also yeah. cuba can't afford to really open up foreign investment because then the floridans will all come in uh, yeah but, uh, yeah it's so um, they have their own they have their own conditions but the one thing i like like i don't think there's there's some people who talk about abolishing restaurants and whatever like there was that Twitter discourse. Oh God, yeah, uh, I remember that. And it's like, I don't know, I'm not an anti-commerce guy because I think commerce has existed pre-capitalism and it will exist as long as people have demands and people figure out how to benefit from it. Uh, but like what I think is more important is limit, limiting the extraction of surplus value, you know, and the people who produce, you know, you know, get what they produce. <laughs> so it's like as you eliminate the exploitation because like I think, and also just, it's a nice thing. Like there's nothing... I think it just adds to more excitement in life when you have restaurants. Like one thing that I hear people complain about the DDR was that all the restaurants owned by the government looked the same and there was not great incentives to like produce good food because you'd get, you know, um, you would actually be in, you would be just rewarded with more work. Cause like, yeah. I think there, there's, there are like incentives that we have to take into account. Like to me, okay. You said, you know, you said just cause something's socialist, it's not good. Like not all socialism is good. In my opinion, speed roading to communism isn't inherently good. Like, why are we communists? Yeah. Because we want the liberation of human freedom and human potential. It's not just because we like this 
like communism for the sake of liking communism is because we like human advancement and human freedom. Uh, and I think like there, yeah, in my opinion, the anti-revisionist view economically is horrible. <laughs> and I think like Cuba was right to, you know, do some liberalization. Like I'm not against that, but you know, you talk to Maoists, they'll be, they'll say, they'll compare it to what Deng did. They see it all as all the same. Yeah. I mean, it's not the same in Cuba at all to what Deng did. It's a lot more controlled. It is concerning in my opinion. Like I, I guess I'm more anti-market than you. You know, I think, uh, you know, I don't think we should rush abolishing markets, but I do think that like, as we reach communism, like we will find better ways to do things than markets and people just won't have a need to use markets. Like I'm, I'm into the whole cybernetic planning stuff. Like I think, um, we can find ways to basically like simulate what markets, you know, do as far as like demand detection, I guess is the, you know, the argument. Like I think, I think we can find the better way of doing things in markets. I just don't think we should rush it. I think we need to, you know, take it carefully, you know, use scientific planning and, and, and just not be voluntarist and adventurist. Well, I think we shouldn't be against markets from a moral view. We should be against it. We should try to be, surpass it from a more scientific socialist view so like cybernetic socialism is meant in planning is meant to supersede the outcomes of of, of um of markets if that makes sense because yeah. i'm all i'm also pro like i'm very i really like um read the book red plenty uh, which is kind of like a fiction book about what happened if the ussr did adopt cybernetic planning very interesting stuff and also like people's republic of walmart which talks about how and now I like Hawkshot's book, um, Towards a New Socialism, about you know, cybernetics and planning. I'm I'm all for that, but I'm also kind of skeptical. I think I, I kind of, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, if that makes sense. Like, I think we should try it and see, like, how that meets outcomes. And then we'll gradually replace markets as opposed to just replacing like banning markets because if we see that that it doesn't just it simply just doesn't work anywhere there's black markets whenever it's created and you see it also in the marxist leninist more conservative strict father morality views is that we should just ban all drugs or ban prostitution in which these are like problematic things like prostitution is like exploitative and um you know drugs can have harmful effects on society they think you can just ban it and it goes away and it doesn't yeah, it's, it's strict father morality, it's, and to me, it's conservative. Yeah, no, people don't want like a paternalistic, like father-like state telling them, like it's just they don't. It's just it's it, it's the arbitrariness of it all, in my opinion. Really, it's just it's the fact that it's like I think um you know the the Marxist project comes out of a broader kind of project of basically like um fighting against kind of arbitrary hierarchies and unjustified um you know social oppression and any kind of unjustified arbitrary power right like we're not just criticizing capitalism we're also criticizing like you know aut aut autocracy governments that are not based on the uh demos of the people but are based on you know the arbitrary authority of um bureaucrats or monarchs you know we have to have a critique of that in Marxism as well as a critique of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember um, when one of your, I think it was, I, I don't think it was Cosmopod, but you had an episode with Swampside Chats, which is another excellent podcast I really like. 
uh, where you guys talked about, uh, we, we all talked about um, the communizers. And um, yeah, I mean, I imagine you don't like communizers because their whole thing is like, we need the rocket straight to communism. Yeah, that. that freaks me out. Like to me, when I, yeah. when I hear about that, it, it just makes me think of Shining Path. Yeah, um, no, I've always said the same thing. It's like Shining Path, Pol Pot, like Year Zero type stuff. I mean, well, the, what I, was weird to me about them is like, if you really want to rush communism, you can live in communism now. Like you can build a commune, autonomous commune. Those exist. Like that's that's essentially what a lot of anarchists. Yeah, do, I know. mean, what they say like, is that like there's just going to be a collapse, and people are going to have to communize to survive. And it's not like it's just like, they phrase it as like an objective thing that's going to happen, whether we like it or not. Basically, which is yeah, very um, bizarre. Yeah, it's very deterministic, but overly so. You know. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of fatalistic too, I guess would be the right word. Fetishistic too, also of like violence. Also riots. Like they think like riots are like the new form of class struggle and that like unions and strikes and parties are done. And it's all about like the kind of spontaneous mob that will like eventually become like um some kind of insurrection to communize everything. But listen, it's never gonna happen, so there's no point in uh <laughs> well, no, uh, you know, I heard someone make a joke that Maoism, because Maoism, you know, include the Shining Path, are really like the biggest practicers of Maoism. Um, Maoism is anarchism in practice. <laughs> I heard someone say that. It's yeah, I, no, I find, I I find that I find that funny just because you know how Catalonia is often romanticized by anarchists, but actually Catalonia was extremely violent. Like yeah, you just have priests being burned alive, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I find that just funny. I, I'm scared. I've been. I've grown like very skeptical of like adventurous trends over the years. But yeah, um, I mean, that's what if you grow older, that's what happens. Like you just like you see some of the weather on your ground, and just kind of like ah, it's just goofy. Like it's not going to do anything. <laughs> uh, I'll ask you one more question because we're obviously been at it for a long time, but. uh what do you think? Because you, we mentioned optics before. Optics are sometimes mocked as a liberal obsession, but I do think optics matter insofar as we're gonna sell socialism to the masses. Um, in what, in your view, what is? What do you think about like the rise in kind of communist nostalgia imagery, like you know, using using uh, the Soviets flag, uh, I, even the hammer and sickle? Because I'm actually critical of that because I don't think an alliance with the proletarian peasantry is really relevant to a lot of first world countries now well, well you know we're, um, we're trying to do a global revolution though you know and the peasantry exists in the global class you know and we want yeah, to, it's relevant to unite with these more agrarian nations i think you know the hammer and sickle still i think you know unity of first world workers and third world workers you know we could kind of do that you know <laughs> i guess yeah that's an argument i mean i wouldn't see this thing i would in, in india like has a large peasantry so like their hammer and sickle makes sense but like you know, peasantry in Canada and the USA, <laughs> like I don't. It just seems outdated to me. The hammer. Yeah. Thing. But in general, what do you think about like people use like you know the Stalin and Mao avatars and the red imagery, the red flags, and yeah, you know, I like that. a lot of that stuff. Honestly, like I think um you know I'm probably guilty of a little like nostalgia, whatever you want to call it. Like I think um you know I think listen, 
as much as we've shat on Marxism, Leninism, and on you know the history of really existing socialism and all these states or whatever, in the end, we do kind of have to own it and just say, yes, this was our movement. This was, you know, this is what the left in the 20th century produced, good and bad. I think that um, we just kind of have to own it and just say, but we will, and, and, and show that we are critical of what went wrong, but we still... I think we, we still kind of have to own it. We just can't say, like, oh, that wasn't real communism. We're, we're real communists. I think there's this. Yeah, I, I hate know. that argument. I hate that. Basically, yeah, it's just a very bad argument. It's a very weak argument. I think we actually do have to take responsibility for this stuff and own it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's basically my take is like, I say, well, well, like, that's, no I don't think say, as a communist, like people are going to associate like a fight to create a new society with the kind of terrors that developed mm -hmm. in the 20th century. And you're going to have to address that somehow. Nothing you say is going to like make that a different reality. So the Marxist Leninists, I think they own that, but they don't take responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a good way of putting it. I think at least and, most Marxist Leninists. Well, for for me, I I I will embrace the word Marxist and communist, whereas some like people now are afraid of even using that. They'll like water it down to democratic socialist or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like I am for the terms. I just like the imagery to me seems almost like a hauntolo like a hauntology if that makes sense like it seems like it's just ghosts from the past coming like it yeah. seems almost like parody sometimes like especially the way it's used by marxist Linus. but it's hard to tell when it's parody or when it's ironic or when it's serious but so like for me okay so i i am i'm for using the word communist but i'm also skeptical of like certain of those like <laughs> hammer and sickle soviet flag optics uh like i know as Zizek had a, when it comes to taking responsibility for communism, um, I remember Zizek was in an interview. I really like Slavoj Zizek a lot uh, as a theorist of ideology. Yeah, he, took a, he had an interview where they asked him, they said, uh, you're a communist, but what do you think about the f uh, history of socialism? And he said, total failure. And he's like, but you're a communist. Yes. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm still a communist. And, I, and it's accepting that contradiction. I kind of respect that more than like, yeah, no, it's accepting the contradiction and, and trying to be creative with it. Yeah. And I will I say, guess. like, um, you know, that kind of nostalgia, it's it's not so much nostalgia for a past as it's nostalgia for a past where there was a future. That's, That's the way a really I look at it, it. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Lost yeah. futures, literally. That's when Mark. Yeah, it's about lost futures. What if we like the movie Goodbye Lenin, I think really summarizes like my attitude towards this stuff. It's like, what if we could make socialism great? What if, you know, we could, you know, take this baseline that we're beginning on and actually make something great out of it and and actually build the new society through mass democracy. And I think that is like, you know, the potential that existed even in like the Eastern Bloc that wasn't activated, but it was still there, I think. And there was still that hope for a, a new... And I feel like a lot of people who are nostalgic for these states, what they're nostalgic for is the idea that, like, we were all working towards something. And now it's just survive. You know, you, all you live for is to survive. Whereas, like, in a socialist society, there at least is the sense that we're building something and working towards something, despite all the flaws. And I think that uh, that's what a lot of people are actually, like, nostalgic about. You have meaning in life, like that's powerful. I mean, yeah. In in defense, the problem is, is that people need to be able to make their own meanings while still being part of the collective project. 
in uh in defense of lost causes which is a Zizek book he talks about um how actually even if we never achieve communism ever it's still like worth being a communism because you have the meaning of a stri- a striving to communism it's a because people need like he recognized people need ideology and people need like meaning in life and sometimes narratives right of course and uh but like at least let's have like a healthier religion then i mean that's kind of like the old soviet idea of like the early bolshevik idea of like god building right kind of kind of into that and i mean that that interests me for sure uh but yeah like yeah i totally i totally get the i mean i totally get the nostalgia in that regard it's more just like I worry sometimes whether the movements can become a parody of themselves. Right. Uh, yeah. We want to be careful of that. We want to like, you know, listen, I'm a member of DSA. Like I don't understand DSA is really cringe, but I mean, like <laughs> I, like I don't mind organizing as a communist and a democratic socialist org. I actually don't really mind the term democratic socialism. Like it is. I don't like the way it's used. Yeah. The way it's used is like the kind of like, hide you know communism or just not be a communist but not be a social democrat but still actually be a social democrat whereas yeah, um, social democrat with co-ops that's basically what yeah really whereas like i actually like think look you know i like democracy and i like socialism so yeah like i'll use that term and you know but i well, I'm, I'm not afraid to tell people that like like if they ask me if i'm a communist like yeah i'm a communist a communist is a socialist there's really no difference between them mm-hmm. shouldn't be I like the term i like republican communist yeah, Republican like, like communism is cool. Yeah, because it's it's reclaiming the good things about liberalism, whereas I feel like democratic socialism reeks too hard of liberal, like the way liberalism has been thought of with capitalism. So like the way democratic socialists like Bhaskar Sankara just call what their ideology is, is like essentially the things we liked about actually existing socialism, like, you know, job guarantee, healthcare, you know, worker empowerment, blah, blah, blah but with like free elections and not suppressing the bourgeoisie by force. And it's like, to me, that just seems naive. And like, that's been tried and failed with like Allende. And I don't know. That's why I agree with you. Democratic socialists. Like it's a, it's a decent term. It's just, it's, it's so, so it's so indistinguishable from social democracy now that it's, I don't know. I'm like for something new at this point, I just like say socialist a lot of the time. Um, I don't think, yeah, I mean, but I just want to say as, as much as we kind of critiqued Marxist Lenin, I think it should be obvious um, if it's not that maybe, maybe we didn't make it clear, but we definitely have way more in common. Uh, well, at least I would say I have more in common with Marxist Lenin than anarcho liberals uh, and like even yeah. social Democrats, to be honest. Like, um, there's something I can work with there, you know, there's a recognition that we need a party, that we need to take power, you know. And foreign policy, I usually side with them yeah. on foreign policy, like anti-imperialism, whereas I've had democratic socialists, quote unquote, you know, the American types think that Hugo Chavez was too authoritarian or that <laughs> Olivo Morales was too authoritarian. I'm like, give me a break, man. Yeah. yeah. So though th- I hate that kind of moralistic rhetoric. I'm for I'm for a synthesis of Nietzsche with Marx, but that's another whole debate podcast. We're <laughs> <laughs> gonna have fighting words over that one from some people. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think I'm not any under under any illusion that Nietzsche was some egalitarian. I just mean Nietzsche's episteme, like his uh his view of morality. I think 
has more in common with the Marxist materialism than, let's say, Kantian categorical imperative would with um, communism. That's a hard sell, but like, I don't know. I feel like it's hard to explain in like a podcast like this, but um, I, I would actually, you know, the, you know, who did a pretty good job of this synthesis is Jonas Cheka's book, like how to philosophize with a hammer and sickle. I think it did a pretty good job of actually like trying to make the case that like Nietzschean Nietzsche's analysis of slave morality has something in common with Marx's historical materialism and Marx's critiques of like, um, of moralism. Anyway. Yeah. So we've been at it for a while. So, uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add about Marxism, Leninism, or maybe like some of the it's oppositional tendencies, like left communism or not, if you have time to even get into that. Oh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> How yeah, long? probably it's not. Almost like two hours and thirty minutes. Damn. Um, yeah. I I think I've said everything I need to say. I said a lot, at least. You know, I think I've I've covered quite a bit of stuff. So I'm not sure if I have. Yeah, just I, in case you forgot anything. Uh, uh, I probably did, but there's an, it's impossible to cover it all. Anyway. There's just so much to talk about. You know, I could do another hour of this if I had more energy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also yeah, it's also because of the night. I operate at like probably 30% of the my capacity at this time of the day. Uh, but yeah, like it was definitely a very interesting discussion, man. And uh, I highly recommend those who uh, listened, especially if, if you're listening to this far enough, good job. Congratulations. You're a true supporter. Uh, but I would highly recommend, uh, as I mentioned before, to check out Cosmopod um, and Cosmonaut Magazine if you want to read the articles. Very excellent dialogue between different points of view. And the podcast, especially, I think, are very, very valuable for historical knowledge uh, and debates on the Marxist left. So, yeah. Nice. Great having you on, Donald. Check out, check out Cosmonaut, cosmonautmag.com. And uh, I think there's, I think every communist can find at least one thing they like on there, I think. Yeah. Uh, and probably so. multiple things that will piss them off, including myself. But, yeah, definitely check out Cosmonaut and you can consider contributing we need more non-sectarian marxists yeah non-dogmatic you know anti-dogmatism that's what that group theoretical review i was talking about they were anti-dogmatist while also being anti-revisionist and critiques of marx and critiques of uh the soviet union from the right of marxism when the right that surprised people like the right what does that mean but like the right i mean you know, like tendencies with Bukharanism and the right opposition, right? Yeah, I think they had great critiques of collectivization and stuff. Because I, yeah, I, I think agree on that, yeah. I, I, I am not a Trotskyist because I think Trotsky is Trotsky would have done the same, if not worse, economic policy than as Stalin. Because, like, number one, he supported the gold standard, which is worse than Stalin because <laughs> Stalin didn't support that. So, like, he supported the gold standard, you idiot. But also, you know, he supported like socialist primitive accumulation in the 1920s. So. I don't see how, like to me, the left, like the problem with Stalin's economic policy wasn't that it was, wasn't left wing enough. Yeah. yeah. It was ultra yeah. left in my opinion. It was. Yeah. I mean, and it wasn't like, cause whatever, that's a whole nother beat. Check people out. Check, get, like, check. People like think it's crazy to say Stalin was ultra left, but proof is in the pudding. Look at the, look at the collectivization. Look at the cultural revolution, from, like 1929, to 1932. Social leftism. Yeah. But anyway, I gotta get going.
Tony. Yeah. It was good talking. I had a lot of fun. For sure. Check out on this subject, check out the Stalin episode on Cosmopod. Yes, check out the Stalin episode on Cosmopod. I think everyone, it's if you're interested in this conversation, I think you'll enjoy that. For sure. Anyways, great having you on. Peace out. Peace out. Le Vietnam brûlé, moi je hurle ma haut, ma haut. Johnson rigole, moi je vole ma haut, ma haut. Le Napalm coule, moi je roule ma haut, ma haut. Les villes crèvent, moi je rêve ma haut, ma haut. Les putains crient, moi je ris ma haut, ma haut. Le riz est fou, et moi je joue ma haut. L'impérialisme dit partout sa loi La révolution n'est pas un dîner La bomba est un tigre en papier Les masses sont les véritables héros Les ricains tuent et moi je mets ma haut, ma haut Les fous sont rois et moi je bois ma haut, ma haut Les bombes tonnent et moi je sonne ma haut, ma haut les bébés fuient et moi je fuis ma haut, ma haut. Les russes mangent et moi je danse ma haut, ma haut. J'appelle des nonces, je renonce ma haut, ma haut. C'est le petit livre rouge qui fait que tout enfin bouge. La base de l'armée, c'est le soldat. Le vrai pouvoir est au bout du fusil. Les monstres seront tous anéantis L'ennemi ne périt pas de lui-même